When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturers of the finest heat-treating ovens available. Find your next oven at evenheat-kiln.com. To the chopper! All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Knife Talk Podcast. Uh, This is the show where we talk knives, we talk making, we offer tips and advice, uh, everything from actually making knives to the business end and everything in between. Uh, I'm uh, I'm Mariko Malmasi of Malmasi Fire Arts. I'm usually here with my my esteemed co-hosts, Jeff Fader of Fader Knives and Craig Lockwood of chop knives uh unfortunately they are not here today this is a a, a kind of a bonus episode i'm doing an interview with my dear friend dan keffler um of well do you have a name for your company i don't know if i do or if i if you do no no i'm just i'm just dan keffler do you you have a name knives and you don't do chiropractic and stuff no no i don't dan's badass knives no i'm just (laughs) <laughs> you do have a, sure, a, a sure, sweet logo it. though with the gorilla. I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, yeah, I'm gonna I, be here uh, chatting with I, Dan I, Kepler. I, like logo. I, I, yeah. I I first met Dan I I believe in 2014 at the Seattle International Knife Show, um, and he was walking around with a giant sword. Uh, which <laughs> I wasn't used to. That was really my first knife show I'd ever been to. Uh, but he's a really nice guy with a great smile, a good sense of humor, and very talented. He is uh, mo- many times over world champion uh, blade sport cutting competition uh, winner, and as well as 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 he just mentioned, a, a, a chiropractor, very talented body worker. Uh, he's actually busted me up at shows. It's cool to see him like just walk around and <laughs> and uh, and uh, oh, what is it? You know, do do some stretching and movement and stuff on people. It's really neat. But I'll let Dan get into it. Dan, please, can you tell me? Uh, you know, how did you get into this? How did? You... Oh, sorry, really quick. I will back up. You know, so Dan, I'm sure he'll get into what he does. But you know, he specializes in really high performance. Blades. I mean, that's how he becomes the world champion multiple times. Is he's able and capable and has the the knowledge and expertise in designing high performance knives that accomplish some really really incredible tasks. So, but 
with that, I will let you get into it, Dan. How did you get into this? Where, like, how did when did you first start making knives? When did you start really taking it serious? When did you get into the cutting competitions? Tell me about it. Yeah, so um, Marco, I started making knives in uh, late fall, early winter of two thousand and one, um, and before that, I'd always really appreciated cutlery. Uh, I'd I'd always looked for uh, just really good pieces. I, I particularly like certain kitchen knives, and I went down uh, the line of production knives and just saw some of the cool things, but some of the shortcomings. And then I've always had a, a fascination with like old world swords, uh, European style and Japanese style swords, and uh, basically blades that were made when people used to live and die by the sword was was kind of one of the things I was really interested in. Um, I was in college sure. for undergrad, and I um, I had a motorcycle accident in the fall. I was actually being stupid and trying to actually I, I did a wheelie, but I came down, blew my front tire, and crashed my bike really bad. So I I ended up having some time on my hands because I didn't die. I I lived and uh, um, I was sitting around. And I was all beat up and and stuff. And I just got online and just started looking at different knives because it was something I was interested in. And then I, I came across a forum called the Custom Knife Directory at the time. And uh, it's kind of like blade forums or knife forums, you know, now. But I, I don't know if it's still running. But it kind of gave me access to different makers in the area. Um, Ed Caffrey in Montana was a mastersmith. Uh, I learned about David sure. Ellis. He's also a, a mastersmith started looking at some of the things that they do and just got really intrigued and through the forums i was able to contact a a maker in washington state up in a small town called wakanda washington his name is ray rogers and um he uh invited me up to a shop it's i used to live up in in okanagan county in in washington state and uh he was about 45 miles north of where i used to live and i i went up to his shop and he took me through the process of making a knife. We made like a four-inch drop point hunter out of 1095 and uh, did the whole process in like a day. And it was a pretty oh, wow. crude knife, but I got to see, I got to see, the, you know, profiling. We did a stock removal. We didn't forge anything that day, um, but got to see, you know, taking the, the, the okay. sheet of metal, of steel, cutting it out. Uh, we, we ground it, heat treated it, put handles on it, tempered it. Well, obviously tempered it before the handles. Uh, and you know, tested it and everything, and it, <laughs> it, the heat tree was all right, but it wasn't that great. But I got to see everything. He handed me a piece of O1 steel and a, and a piece of wood, and said, "Here, go go see what you can do with this." And I got hooked. Wow. So, yeah, that's uh, I mean, that's that's a great way to get into it. And you know, stock removal. I you know, we get the question on here all the time. People are asking about whether they should start forging first or stock removing. And I always advocate for people to do stock removal first because, uh, and maybe you'll agree, but I, I think a, a well, a properly ground knife is more important than a forged knife. And I think as we get into this conversation, you know, with the, the incredible performance you can get out of your blades, which are stock removed blades, I think that will help settle that kind of argument that a forged blade is better than a stock removed blade, because I think that's not necessarily the case. Um, but so what are the I style of knives that you focus have their, so oh, that you are ahead. focusing on it and making now? 
Oh, uh, you know, I always look for. I, I was just asking performance out. based. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. Um, yeah, just uh, you know, biggest thing for me is is high performance and. Currently, I am, if, if you see some of my stuff on Instagram, I've been working with a friend of mine, uh, Sam. He's uh, at Mad Science Forge on Instagram. And uh, I met Sam about six years ago, and he's he got on Blade Forums and was saying he, he wants to make titanium swords. And everybody told him he couldn't do that because titanium's really tough, but you can't harden it to hardnesses that are, that are good for a knife or sword blade. And Sam was crazy enough to be like, well, no, I think I can still do it. Mm. And uh, a lot of people told him he couldn't. And I, yeah. I got a hold of him right away and said, dude, I, I've always wanted to do that. You're crazy enough to do this. What can I do to help? Come to my shop. Let me show you how I make swords. And so that we can get your pieces uh, more presentable. And then uh, we've been working together ever since. And he's been developing and doing a lot of the research that that um, I didn't have time to do and wasn't able to do, uh, but I had a desire to learn about these things. So he's kind of I'm kind of vicariously living through him uh, and his his mad science brilliance. Sure. Uh, we're researching different titaniums, getting them hard enough to heat treated properly to actually hold an edge and do things that an edged uh, piece of metal should do. Uh, so the the. So that's kind of what we're working on right now. I'm actually working currently on a blade that we've we uh, made a sand mine construction out of two different types of titanium. Uh, we went to Ed Shimp's shop here in Ephrata, Washington, because he has a big mm. rolling mill, and uh, we used his forge and his rolling mill. He he was graciously let us do that and uh, forged out some billets. And I've got a katana that I'm working on that's heat treated, and I'm just finish polishing and mounting right now and i'll do a little bit more test cutting um this is the third what i would call actual functional titanium swords we made a couple that i didn't think were quite up to to standards but these ones are really coming through uh with the prototypes and stuff that they're they're showing really good edge holding capability kind of similar to like a um i'd say the edge holding capability is like a a, a good heat treated 1070 series steel um hmm. I find that in the testing that I do, the things that would damage that edge damage this edge, but the things that that edge can do, this edge can also do. But then you take the material is exceptionally light and uh, and durable, and it just adds a really cool piece to it. Yeah, yeah, that's really a, that's a really interesting relationship that you have. I think a lot of makers would be very hesitant to develop something like that, and not. You know, I've, I, I, you know, I'm speaking from my own experience, you know, I, I have all these different ideas for making Damascus, but I don't necessarily have the time to make all these patterns and to kind of prove these ideas. And I have thought about working with somebody, um, to, to who, who has maybe more time to do experimentation and, and playing around with these kind of patterns. Um, how do you, how do you kind of navigate and kind of figure out, you know, whether or not you can basically trust somebody to not just take all the concepts and ideas that you've, you've been thinking about over the last who knows how long to, and just, and trust them that they're not going to just take it and run away. And do you, do you have contracts or is it just shaking the hand or, you know, how do you, how do you uh, work through that? You know, part of it, I think you vet the character of the person. Um, sure. That's why I, uh, anybody I usually work with, uh, I meet them directly, much like I've met you and 
um, sure. you know, have long conversations with that person and figure out what motivates them. And uh, Sam is not a person that's terribly motivated by, you know, fame or money. He he really wants to, he's got a similar drive as I do. He just really wants to make the highest performance pieces possible. And he's sure. willing to, he's willing to take the time and sacrifice because there's, like myself, he's in a position where I can, I mean, I fulfill orders. I, I take, I take some orders or I have a, a pretty significant backlog and I can always work on that and keep pushing those pieces out. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, and I really enjoy it and I'm, and I'm thankful for that. But I also have the desire to continue to innovate and push, uh, push what we know the capabilities of metallurgy are. Uh, and Right. That's that's you know I just find the same type of drive in him and so you know we've worked really well together and yeah either one of us would be um able to just branch off and claim sole authorship or whatever but I don't think that's I'm in it for the long game and I, and he is as well that's and right. so we both have these things that we want to see come to fruition and we've been able to to make it happen a lot faster working together that's just, uh, I guess that's a risk you take. Um, and I have yeah. seen it go south for other makers in the past, but um, I, I, it's going really well right now. And um, we're both uh, giving credit to each other for, I mean, he's doing so many things that I'm not able to do with these pieces. And then I'm doing things that he's not able to do. So it's like a true collaboration in a way. Um, we sure. have a... Uh, something better because of because we're both involved and and providing our expertise so i don't mm-hmm. know if that really answered your question but uh um yeah <laughs> that's yeah it. no i think that definitely helps uh at least me personally trying to yeah kind of try to navigate that myself because like i said i i have thought about trying to reach out to makers that i i have met myself personally and and know them and trust them who are friends who i maintain conversations with um and and who have the the right equipment to basically you know they could take a day and develop this pattern and then um that i had planned out it's kind of like are you familiar with dale chihuly the glass artist here in washington yes yes i am not not particularly my daughter's actually gone to i think their studio in tacoma the tacoma area yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean the way he works is that he has, you know, he has the concepts and then he has people who are kind of apprentices or who are partners and working along with him uh kind of do this stuff because his body can't physically do the work, but he he can still he has the mind for design for all this stuff. And so anyways, um so this I did see that ti- that that Sanmai titanium sword that you posted on your Instagram. I think it was just yesterday. Um you so is that it, that seems like that's a new thing. Is that new? I don't know much about the whole history of, you know, cuz I've seen like quote unquote Mokutai or Taimascus and how is so how is this titanium Sanmai different? Um are those are those other kind of uh metals are those just decorative things or are they actually can you make cutting tools out of those what's the difference between what you and sam are working on and and other stuff that's been in the past as far as i know those those like mokutai and timascus um they were made uh for bolster and handle material 
um, fittings and stuff, but they don't have the the titanium characteristics that respond to heat treat uh, that actually would turn them into uh, what I would consider a, a functional or high-performance blade. Um, mm. We actually went with the intent of selecting uh, certain materials, and this is more Sam's expertise. This is where I really relied on him for, to do the research to find uh, the different types of titanium. And um, through talking to Sam, a lot of these titaniums, they're they're really old. A lot of them were, were developed during the Cold War era as uh, military armor plating or as different uh, different things for aerospace, uh, rotor blades and helicopter blades and just materials yeah. that take a lot of forces from different directions and are required to be really stable and have real low chip propagation. Um, so he's done a lot of this research and then uh, and, and sourced some of these materials because a lot of them are were just uh, really, really hard to find. And then we go through and uh, we make uh, test pieces out of them, you know, machetes or uh, small blades and, and heat treat, try different protocols and really test them to, to destruction in a lot of ways. Uh, and then when we come up with materials, we're like, man, this is this is really doing stuff. Not only is it, uh, you know, the, the inherence is, is the titanium's generally really flexible and really uh tough really really resistant to taking a set you can bend it and flex and stuff like that the challenge has always been getting it to hold an edge and and not just flatten out when chopping into wood sure. or other things and uh that's where uh the different heat treat protocols that sam has developed have really come into play i mean i i'd like to say i helped out with that but he really, uh, really, um, I mean, the only way I, I, I really helped out was I helped facilitate the places and, uh, and equipment uh, to make those processes more um, consistent and testable um, before just, mm. you know, there were too many variable factors. And basically, I've been using my systems to work with Sam to help eliminate variable factors so we can get more consistent, repeatable results. Uh, that's where I've I've come into play with that part, uh, and then um, and then yeah, after after finding the different materials that really really work and sourcing them and 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 and, and being able to get them on hand and test them, uh, we've been able to come up with some things that are are really impressive. They're they're just a lot of fun to use and a lot of fun to test and and a lot of and can do some really spectacular uh cutting performance. They achieve performance a different way versus versus steel. It's not that I would say better, but it's a different approach. Sure. It's it's super interesting to hear that uh the titanium, I don't know, for some reason in my mind, titanium is like alien steel, basically, <laughs> or alien metal. And it's interesting to hear that it's been around since World War II and developed, uh, I think, I can't remember now already, I think you said Germany, but that, that, it, that it's been around oh. and being put to use for such a long time already. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of it was Cold War uh, time period between Russia and the United States. Um, uh, Japan also developed okay. some really interesting titanium. Uh, uh, some of the, the ties that the, my history with titanium is I play, I play golf and I like drivers, um, cause they smash the ball really far and, and it's fun. Um, and the technology <laughs> and the titanium face of, of certain drivers is just 
ridiculously like space age uh is the shape regarding how the the material reacts to taking that much impact that quickly and then absolutely showing no sign of damage uh is is really impressive and 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 we've applied some of those those materials that were used in golf club faces to blades and altered the heat treat a little bit and and got some pretty cool results out of it and stuff so it's uh it's its own realm and the funny thing is like i uh i'm not known for doing titanium stuff my my particular i'd say most people that uh know my materials there's a couple things i mean i i compete uh in blade sports i use a, a steel called veneta sport extra and that's through doing a lot of research uh i, I started more with m4 went to some other materials uh, like uh, PD-1 and then Venetus 4 Extra and then uh, experimented with quite a few different different I mean 52100 made a good competition chopping knife it's a you know more of a simple carbon ball bearing steel but it actually makes a really good you could win competitions with 52100 um, but Venetus 4 is where I settled with my my competition knives and still testing other metals but haven't found anything that does what it does regarding what we want for a competition and then my swords uh, sure. Swords and knives. Um, I mostly so you, sell in CPM oh, 3V. Oh, yeah, in in 3V, and then have spent nice. uh, ten. Well, how I I trying to think of the date. So over 15 years working with 3V, developing heat treat protocols and testing and and doing a lot of stuff, uh, and then also bringing in. Uh, I I basically collaborated with Nathan Carruthers uh, the last four or five years really uh refining the heat tree protocol nathan was doing some things that were pretty darn impressive with uh edge stability of 3v and uh he and i found that a lot of our our processes were similar but he was able to take things further than i could with uh the edge stability and then uh working with peter's heat treat who sponsors me for cutting competitions uh we developed uh protocols for uh for CPM 3V that um, perform really, really well. So this titanium thing is a total different genre, and uh, but it's super fun and exciting, and there's there's things to be gained with these pieces as well. Sure. Uh, so you mentioned a bunch of a very that sound very uh, kind of what I would <laughs> typically refer to as boutique steels, and I think more than anything, yeah. it's just because I'm super unfamiliar with them. I use uh, I, I you know for a lot of the, my work, I'm working with very basic uh, high carbon steels that play nicely and weld nicely together. Uh, how you know so how do these different steels uh, like the three V and uh the m3 and all these other ones how do they because I, I think most of our listeners are are familiar with kind of your standard high carbon steels and maybe some like abl and 440c or something like that but how do these other alloy steels that you're using for your performance plates how do they vary what are the kind of the qualities that come with the different alloying elements of those steels and what are you looking for when you when you start developing heat treat protocols and and um and building knives with these different steels so this question is going to have a long answer um but it's a it's a great question sure. 
So let me start back. When I first started making uh, knives and uh, I guess knives, uh, I didn't make a lot of swords at first. I tried to, but I failed at a lot of swords. Then I realized I had to get good at making knives and then I could expand to swords. But um, I was using carbon steels. And in a lot of ways, I was getting really good results after, um, after getting a lot of information from the forums. And I mean, I didn't invent anything really. Uh, I, I, I really relied on other people's knowledge, you know, different makers through the ABS. And um, the challenge I was having, though, is that uh, I started seeing some, once I got my processes dialed in regarding heat treat, you know, timing my soak times and, and, and putting, uh, take, I, I built a forge and I had digital um, uh, temperature control and, and all this stuff. But I was getting variations between batch to batch. So I, I was doing 1095. I really liked 1095 because I liked how hard the edge got and how refined I could and sharp I could make the edge. And differential heat treat had solved the problem of having toughness with hardness. Um, but I was getting inconsistencies from batch of steel to batch of steel. And because I wasn't making a lot of pieces, I was only ordering a few bars at a time and make something. And then I would order new bars and I would try my my um heat treat and not get the results that i got before and it was really frustrating because you know you know how heat treat is and how f forging and, and and grinding and you get all the way to this piece that you're ready to turn into a knife and it just doesn't happen as well as you're you're expecting it to um and so i started doing more research and one of the things i found out about different cold rolled or or, or hot i mean hot rolled uh steel like the 10 series, your basic carbon steels, or 5160. I, I did some work with 5160. The 10 series, which is mostly 1070, 1084, and 1095, were the ones I worked with. Um, and then I worked with 5200 a bit, but I didn't have a big press or anything, so I, I would get like um, sheets from Bob Kramer at times. Um, and mm -hmm. the inconsistencies were the things that really bothered me. Um, and so I started looking into particle metallurgy, you know, through Crucible and, and, uh, and because of their manufacturing process, uh, you know, from batch to batch, you're going to get a lot more consistency and it's going to respond to if you develop or if there's a really good heat treat protocol, you're going to get real consistent results with that. So you're, if you're going to change your design or you're going to, you're going to innovate something or, or try a different geometry you know that your variable is relatively uh common with uh i mean you're you're um consistent with heat treat and uh and and metallurgy and so that's kind of why i went away from the 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 carbon steel and forging now i'm not saying that there you can't make amazing blades and there, there are a lot of makers including yourself that make amazing carbon steel pieces and i still really like to use carbon steel pieces um but for what I do, um, it allows me to continue to push the envelope without, without, without wondering if I if I dialed in that heat treat just just right um, for for that batch sure. and stuff. So that was that was one thing. Um, and then um, in uh, uh, so I started to <clears throat> make swords, and I wanted to have. Um, I wanted to have just a different level of performance for swords. Uh, I'd seen 
and, and made some more traditional style blades, differentially heat treated uh, with hormones. And, and, and I love the hormone line. It's, it's absolutely beautiful and stuff. But when I was chopping trees and, and hardwood or two by fours, or whatever like that, the swords would a lot of times take a set. Um, I've, I had different, mm-hmm. different swords I bought as a, in my collection and, and I just wasn't getting the durability that I wanted out of them. So, um, I started exploring, you know, making swords out of other materials and then CPM 3V came along after trying some other materials that failed. And, uh, and, and it just showed huge promise in, uh, overall durability and then carried a lot of those same characteristics of being simple enough that you can get a really fine, refined edge, but you also get the benefit of a little bit of stain resistance over a carbon steel. And, um, it's super, if heat treated properly, it can be super springy and still hold a a, a very good edge, um, much, you know, like Mm. a, a good edge for a knife on a sword was something I hadn't seen a lot of. Sure. Something and then you I forgot just the said rest really... of the parts of the question. Oh, sorry. Okay, I probably I, I I rattled on way too long. Um, so you said taking a set really quick. That means, if I understand what you're saying right, it means it bends or flexes, but it stays bent or stays Correct. kind of tweaked off. Okay. And then, um, so listening to you talk about the titanium and. It, work that you've been doing most recently with Sam, as well as even when you first started um, working with uh, working and making knives and stuff, it seems like you've always had kind of a scientific approach. Um, it sounds like you are very systematic about it. You're not just, uh, you know, willy nilly throwing things into the kiln and trying them out. You're, you're being very thoughtful about how you approach um, everything. I imagine you're probably keeping logs of some sort, um, you know, where, where does that come from? What makes you, why do you, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's awesome, but I don't feel like I, I know very many people who actually do that. And why is it that you approach it that way? Well, I just, um, I, I have, I mean, this is going to sound, uh, I don't want to sound like verbose, but I want to see what is possible with cutlery and so for that i look at what other people have achieved and um and can appreciate uh other makers that really uh focused on performance and uh you know wanted to continue to do that just i mean just want and really appreciate high performance blades whether it be in the kitchen or on a competition course or in a sword setting um or in a in a field setting with uh you know cleaning or skinning or or um uh all that stuff um and it's just a fascination i have and uh, you know, most things, when you really go to improve it, you, you try to eliminate the reasons that, that would, would cause, uh, cause uh, discrepancies or inconsistencies. And if you can eliminate as many of those as you can, because you're, you're never going to eliminate all the variables, but you can, you can elimi- eliminate some of them uh, right. and, and continue to improve. I, I, I always look to improve my designs and always tweaking heat treats or trying new materials and testing um yeah so where did i get that um you know i played i played college sports played college football played college rugby um 
and there was a lot of, you know, just training and refinement. I mean, I've never been the most, I've never been on the field and been the most gifted athlete, but I've, I've been competitive physically, but then, you know, you have to change your game and compete mentally as well. And, and that's where I focused. And I think I carried a lot of that over to, um, to doing knives and, and then cutting competitions as well. And so, so yeah. I like it. I mean, I think it's great. Like I said before, I think it's a really good thing. I think I, I fall into the category of having a tendency to not <laughs> do the best job, uh, kind of cataloging everything that I'm doing, w whether it's pattern development and whether or not I've tried this certain order of operations before or whatever, versus, uh, you know, down to heat tree or even, you know, I don't know how many times I, you know, I, I do this kind of faceted uh, handle, Western style handle. And for probably the mm -hmm. first year and a half, I wasn't doing them very often. So I just, I just kind of would do them. And I found that every time I would go back to do one, whatever, whether it was two months later or six months later, I was like, oh my God, I can't remember how I'm supposed to start this. And I realized I need to start keeping track of what I'm doing just because it just makes it easier for me more than anything. I'm, I'm, I'm causing myself more heartache or, or stress and strain in the process than it needs to be. Uh, and so I just, I really admire that and I appreciate that and you know, what you're doing, work you're doing. One of, one of the things that I do, and it's a real simple, uh, thing to do. Um, when I find something I really like, if I've made something, um, I make a template, and a lot of people do this, but you know, you'll see mm -hmm. them in different knife maker shops, just like an aluminum cutout of a profile of a blade or whatever. But there's so many times, and you've probably had this before, where you made a piece and it was awesome, and you you sold it, and then all of a sudden you're like, man, I should make another one of those. And rather than being able to just springboard off of where you left off, you're you're figure refiguring out what you figured out before. And sometimes that can be <laughs> yeah. a blessing. I think with Damascus patterns, you'd be like, you could discover something altogether different because you're just a different person that day. Um, but sometimes, yeah. like with my handles, uh, I focused a lot on handle ergonomics, especially because of cutting competitions. And that's one of the areas sure. where uh, a lot of refinement really pays off because consistency is the most important thing with cutting competitions. People think power and sharp blade and and all this stuff those things are important but if you don't have consistency you're not going to win and so yeah. i was designing my competition handles to make sure that there were enough enough references in my handle that the blade falls into the same part of my hand every time mm. and that way i know the relationship between the edge and the handle so if the handle is re related to my hand uh, is lined up properly then i know where the edge is at without having to look and right. uh, and so when I would discover a hand, when I would continue, and I've got so many different handle shapes that I would just go chop and chop and you know for and slice and and they just kind of kind of tally what what I would run competition in my you know just simulated competitions and tally you know how things were going and then mentally keep track of things based off of how I've performed before and other pieces. Um, and then when I come up with a handle I really like, um, I make a template of it. And that way I can, if I, if I change my blade design, I can say, well, I can still utilize this handle. I may have to tweak its, you know, geometry a little bit, basically its relationship to the edge 
uh, based off of what curvature or lack of curvature there is in the blade. Um, but I can still keep that handle retention and that, that, uh, that reference point to where the edge is at. And so, yeah, templating, I mean, different blade designs, different things, um, I found that that really helps out um, because you can save yourself a lot of time by not having to rediscover something. But on the flip side, you can also oh, get sure. bored by redoing what you've already redone. So I also spend, I actually divide my <laughs> shop space up into days for innovation and days for, for manufacture, in a sense. Uh, and I allow myself on the days for innovation to just to just dink around and, and try to answer questions I still have regarding performance and swords and knives and right. all that stuff. Um, so you just talked about yeah, how long you answers. break up your, your work. No, it's great. Uh, you were just talking about how you break up your, your work day slash work week, it sounds like, maybe even your month. Um, can you just kind of dive back into that a little bit more? Because this is something I struggle with myself uh, because I do kind of get into a rut of feeling like I'm doing kind of basically the same thing over and over and over again. And I have a really hard time uh, kind of carving out time for myself to do my own kind of personal exploration in either developing a pattern or like making a pattern that I've been thinking about or trying a different handle style or blade grind or whatever it might be. Or maybe it's just a different approach to forging a, a chef's knife blade. I, I have a hard time carving out that time. How, how have you uh, made that work for you? Yeah, I, I've, I've actually written down a schedule for myself. Um, so I work as a chiropractor, and due to this uh, coronavirus, I've, I've had to cut back some of my my hours. But I actually don't have a full work week as a chiropractor. I, I, I really work on this work-life balance. So I generally work Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And I work just uh, four, four to five hours in the mornings. And I, and I just I go in there. I'm all fired up and ready to see my patients and ready to be that, that person for them. And uh, for those four to five hours each day, right. you, you can get 100% of me if you're one of my patients. And that's, that's what I, I really um, mm. appreciate and, and, and believe is important. But with that, gives me the ability to go home. I have three half days a week, and I have four full days a week that I can designate towards shop time. Now, I still have other commitments, my family and, and uh, um, you know, just little we have a little bit of a ranch out here a little bit of a, some animals and and stuff and I and I do some work there with with my family and stuff and spend time with family but so I have my designated shop time and um you know I take a I take a couple of those full days and I say hey the, I need to work on previous orders on my backlog and I go in there and I and I and I put on my put on my uh my shop clothes and I go to work um, I have a plan for the day. I, it's like, okay, so these handles or whatever are going to get to this phase by the time uh, this day's over. Just set little goals for myself. But on my other days, sure. I'm like, hey, this is a free day. Get in the shop and start uh, start doing things like titanium swords that um, aren't making money uh, because I'm not. I haven't sold any of them yet, but they are answering mm -hmm. questions uh, that I've had for a long time, and. Um, and so, uh, you know, I give myself that freedom to, to innovate and, and explore things that, that I don't have the answers for, but am willing to sacrifice that time 
to to make those discoveries and sometimes you end up with absolutely nothing it's not very often anymore because sure. i've gotten better at this as I've, I've been doing this but other times you just end up with a whole you know when you allow yourself to to think freely and not be pressured you end up with a whole bunch of those things that keep you or that really excited you about making knives when you first started um, you know when you when you make a piece you've already made before and you know you know what the finish line is, you're not as excited to pull all the tape off the blade and polish the handle up and be like, all right, this one's ready to go. You know, because you're proud and you 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 appreciate your capabilities and you can you can be like, man, this is easier for me than it used to be because I've refined those skills. But when you're making something you've never made before, I like take the tape off the blade half the times just to see it again. You know. And then, and you know, when I mean tape on the blade, I tape the blades up like a lot of makers do when I'm working on the handles, when I'm working on other things that could scratch the blades. Um, because you get the blades to almost a finished point so that you can fit everything else. That's how I do it. So something I really love about what you're saying regarding your workflow and your work day is that you, you know, you, you really kind of isolate specific time um, for your different tasks that you have planned, and whether it's doing your chiropractic work or doing your knife work. I, I really like how that really how allows you to come, like you said, come in fresh, come in very focused for your patients, because I think that's as a, a, a service provider uh, at the most basic form, I think that's one of the best things you can do, especially something that's so personal um, where you're actually interacting physically with another person's body to, to really dedicate attention to them. Cause I know I've definitely, I've gone, to uh doc whether it's like just a, a general practitioner or whatever and it seems like they got other things on their mind or they're trying to get out of there because of whatever else instead of them being more focused and i have had uh doctors who are very focused and and very in tune with what i'm and the very like i can feel like they're listening with intent everything that i'm talking about or describing and that I'm experiencing feeling and there's a very different experience and I just I really admire that you do that and I love that it also allows you to be super focused on what you're doing when it comes to your knife work as well uh, that way it, and I think part of the problem that I experience is that when I come in and do my knife work I am very um, you know it's it's like I said it feels like I'm doing the same thing day in and day out and I think I think part of my problem is I don't have that thing to break it up as much and so it feels like essentially one continuous slog instead of having very clear delineations of where that day stopped and the other days start because you're breaking it up and I don't know maybe yeah, or maybe that, that I just have a shitty sense. mindset <laughs> No, no, I've struggled with the exact same thing. Um, you know, the redundancy side of things uh, can be challenging, and and um, uh, but you know, I, I it's a couple things. I mean, much like I do with the the chiropractic work, when I'm making a piece, uh, I want that to be, I want that to be a representation of the best of me at that time. And, and, it, and it isn't always the mm. best of you ever, but it, it can be the best you have right now. And that has to be good enough because you can't do any better uh, unless you have a better day next time and stuff. But the the thing is, is that um, you have to look back and, and, and think of the things that really intrigued you about being a maker. And, mm. and part of that is the excitement of 
creating and innovating and, and doing something that you've never done before or you've never seen done before. And you have to allow yourself the time to continue to do those things and you will keep your zest for knife making. I've had times where I've gotten in lulls and lost my zest for things and, and taken, you know, significant times where, you know, maybe I couldn't make anything for a month or two or or so sure. just because every time you get in there it's like you got parts that you have to realize I mean another thing that I do is if I mess up on something I'm like okay I can fix that if I mess up twice I immediately put that piece down or put it on the wall and say look I'm not in the mindset to do this this type of work right now um, right. because it requires more of me than I'm able to give um, and I pick something else like okay I can sand a handle or, or something like that, but I'm not going to be finishing a plunge line right now or, or, or something like that, that, that sure. if you mess up with one stroke, you have to like redesign the blade. Um, so yeah, it's, it's knowing yourself and stuff. And right. so it's that, that carrot and a stick. If you, if you're starting to get a lull in the shop or, or something's not, you know, coming together, give yourself a carrot. Be like, you know, what's something I want to do that, that, um, I'm not giving myself time because maybe I have back orders or some other commitments. And that goes into the backlog description, which I've, I've messed up on and I've done better in the past is you got to realize when you take an order, um, sometimes you're taking on a boss and you're also telling future you that you have to do something and future you may not want to do that that day. Right. <laughs> it, it's like I always say like future Dan's gonna have to go to work tomorrow and figure this this stuff out. Um yeah, but yeah. sometimes I clean my shop and I let future Dan have a clean shop so that he can just get right to work tomorrow. And stuff. <laughs> I love that future Dan. <laughs> hey, you know and, it's and smart you, though, that's exactly it. Have you ever gone like have you ever gone like, oh past Dan really screwed me over on that one, now I gotta bail him out. You know, because it can go it can go both ways. Um, right. I always look at myself as my three selves, my past self, my present self, and my future self. And uh, if I want to go do a competition and I want to do well, well, past Dan better have practiced and, and sharpened his knife properly and 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 gotten enough sleep and, and, and mm. eaten properly and done all those things. Then I can expect to actually perform well. But if I haven't done those things, I shouldn't have those expectations. Sure. and stuff just like in the shop if i haven't uh if i haven't bought the tools like if i if i ever i always keep two of every tool pretty much any hand tool oh. or any bit or anything like that i have at sure. least two and if i ever get less than two I, I i immediately order two more because the worst is to be in the middle of of something and you need a special tap and you break it and you don't have any more and you're like stuck because the process can't continue without that that drill sure. bit or tap or whatever so yeah, you just have to look out for yourself. Like you're the most important person you can think of in a way. Right, right. I like it. I like that. Um, so regarding how this, so you're doing a lot more work with titanium and with these kind of uh, specialty steels. How do they? Because all I hear about titanium or even like M3 and other high uh, carbide forming materials or at least, uh, you know, like vanadium rich materials. And from mm -hmm. my own experience is that they're insanely wear resistant. Um, how do these, how do these stack up against kind of normal, again, going back to what most, most of the makers listening to this podcast, they're, they're used to kind of simpler high carbon steels. How does it stack up against those simpler high carbon steels to grind on these kind of boutique materials? Um, and, 
you know, do you notice a dis? It's interesting. I love that you have the experience of both, so that you can really offer a kind of a, an informed um, opinion about the variances. Oh yeah, with a lot of my materials, including the titanium, um, the M4, uh, 3V at different heat treating cycles. Some heat treating, the current one, were actually it it is resistant to grinding, but it's not as bad as it used to be when it, we had different martensite formation. Um, but the 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 high high uh, element load. Oh, I forget the terminology now. Um, high alloy uh, metallurgy is it's really hard on belts and um, fortunately for some of them you can do a lot of the work uh, in the annealed state uh, mm. before heat treat and if you, your your heat treat is good I actually use for for all of my stuff I use Peter's heat treat they, they've been sponsoring me for 10 plus years in counting con- competitions oh, wow. I work directly with uh, Brad Stallsmith they're the um, foreman there at the at the shop. Um, he competes in blade sports. I trained him and uh, make his knife. Or he's using actually a collaboration that's my design right now. Um, so he totally gets it because he competes. Um, right. Anyways, if the heat treat's dialed in and you're not getting a lot of warpage or you have the ability to correct the warpage, you can get really close to finish. So that saves on belts. Um, mm. But... Uh, but there are times where you do have to grind hard and understanding how your abrasives work. Um, speaking of abrasives, I, I've ordered combat abrasives to use the shredder belts along with other belts that I use. And they, they're really good belt. They, they do a particular, uh, task of material moving that I find really good compared to other belts, uh, for some of my materials. So, um... They're, they definitely have a place in my 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 wall of belts, um, but like you're saying, comparing, I can take a belt that stops cutting the materials I use, like the titanium or or uh, Venetus Four Extra, and it still looks pretty good, but it just isn't. It's just making heat, um, and then I can mm. throw a piece of carbon steel on there, and it just throws sparks, you know. So oh, so I literally, if somebody uh, wants to contact me, I have a bunch of like you know, 30% used belts that I throw away because, uh, um, they don't do what I want anymore, but they would, they would last forever with your, with carbon steels and stuff. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, That's I mean, so I, I, I literally made like a belt order and it was like almost a thousand dollars recently. It, it, uh, it's just a big box of belts. I'm like, yay. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. But oh, yeah, cool. you, you have to, you have to just play the game like they're free because they work yeah. really good and they're really predictable but as soon as you have to start pushing and really hogging if it isn't uh if it isn't a part of the the um task like when you're hogging you you're putting a lot of pressure and you're not really going for finish you're just going for material has to be gone and and, and uh uh understanding that the belts like to run fast if they're a ceramic belt um i actually measured my grinder uh, with the pulley system and the motor that I have, I can get up to like 40, 4,600 feet per second. And usually around 4,000 feet per second is where a lot of these ceramic belts are um, tested for industry. And that's kind mm. of how they're they're rated. Um, oh, interesting. I've actually called the belt manufacturers, including Combat Abrasive. I talked to them at the Portland, uh, the Blade Show West. 
and right. was asking them specifically about uh, speeds and, and where they were tested and, and what, what results they're getting. And, you know, just ask those questions. And they were saying around 4,000 feet per second was where you get, it's kind of a sweet spot for them. But man, you, you start making sparks and things sound like they're going really fast on the grinder when you're going that fast. Yeah, yeah. Except on the flip side, I also do a lot of really slow grinding. I have a step pulley system, so I, I crank it down to where it has a really small drive wheel and a really big, uh, I mean, on the motor and then a really big uh, wheel for for the grinder. And then it's variable speed and turn it way down. And I sit there and, and I treat my... Um, oh, wow my platen like a japanese stone i actually have water uh dripping over it with an iv bag and then the sure. belt you can actually still read the backing of the belt while it's going around it's it's not going oh, terribly fast and <laughs> i do a lot of a lot of material removal that way especially for titanium uh titanium i mean you can blast through titanium but you throw a lot of sparks start a lot of fires and your belts get um the titanium will cling to the belt and then and then catch on fire so you have like the belt spinning with little pieces of burning titanium on it and it and it just it'll like literally cook the adhesive uh on that belt and uh so i can slow it down and use coolant uh and not throw the sparks and it looks and it's literally like you're just running a big old file across but it's just dropping shavings but it only does that for a while because it gets kind of dull and then you got to change belts if you want to keep going that way right so there's a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of experience and, and the ability to listen to your machinery and feel the feedback with what you're doing. Because you can feel when a, when a belt is just taking away material the way you want it to. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I got to push a little bit harder. I'm getting a little more heat or this or that. You either got to yeah. dress that belt, change the direction, um, or change belts. Sure. What is, what, is, what is the way that you dress a belt uh, to kind um, of freshen up the abrasive? I have a bunch of carbide end mills and I'll just, you know, for my coarse grits, I'll just blast a carbide end mill in there and just try sure. to break it up. And I realize the belt isn't going to be, it isn't going to be consistent anymore. It's going to have highs and lows and stuff, but right. I'm in the hogging phase right now and I can accommodate for that. Um, you know, the deepest scratch it's going to create, I'm still going to be able to get below that with another grit. So I, I've got enough experience to know where that threshold is. Um, uh, I use a belt eraser. I've tried using the, the grease on the belts through combat abrasive and it's worked at times, but I, I don't know if I'm doing it right. So I okay. need to look back at that more. Um, okay. uh, so yeah, I try all the different belts and all the different things. And, 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 and it's funny because, um, the, yeah, it, you know, I've, like I've done in blade sports, there's a lot of standards that I have. So when I try something new, I can put it right into that process and be like, well, if I compare to my standards, it does this a little better or it doesn't do this. And then you can tell what, what things to tweak to see if you can get it to improve. For sure. Well, that being said, you actually beat me to the punch. Craig, you want to throw in that combat read by Arnie? Get it. Combat abrasives. <laughs> combat abrasives. <laughs> He should be like, get to the grinder. (laughs) Do it now. (laughs) Do it now. Come with me if you want to live. Stop. Uh, Stop whining about your knives. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so you have we so we've talked about you being a chiropractor a little bit. Um, can you tell us more about that? Like, is is that what you were going to school for? And yeah. when you mentioned earlier, you were going to school, and then how? It, I think it's really cool that you have that chiropractic background and to talk about body mechanics specifically for knife makers because you are a knife maker, not just because uh, you know you're smart about chiropractic and all that stuff around that um can you talk to us about some of uh some of like just basic good practices because i know i find myself often like very often um very especially if i spend a lot of time at the grinder or even hovering over the anvil and forging you know my my kind of like my middle back upper middle back gets really really tight and kind of feels pretty horrible actually at the end of the day it feels like my back is broken i've i've been a lot better about being consistent in kind of doing like morning uh like yoga stretching as as like you know as silly as that might sound for some people like it really makes a huge difference in how my body feels at the end of the day if i do yoga versus not doing yoga or any any kind of stretching at all whatever it is um so yeah, please talk to us about body mechanics as so, knife as knife man- makers and what we can do to help take care of our bodies better. So one of the things that I treat a lot of is something I call tech neck. Um, and it's that posture that you get when you're on the computer for a long time. You know, a lot of people that work in IT industry, they're just kind of hunched forward, bending forward, kind of in the fetal position while sitting. And you really want to counteract that. And the thing is, is that position isn't terrible for you in short bouts, but long periods of time, it it changes the way that the ligaments and tendons work in your back and your shoulders. And uh, the way to counteract that, we do the same thing when we're grinding, when we're hand sanding, when we're filing. We're really just hunched over with our hands in front of us doing work and we're looking down and stuff. And you're just, you're kind of in a, a... and, and being in that position is not a terrible thing, but being in that position for long periods of time is really damaging. And so one of the things that anybody can do is, I mean, I like to set, sometimes I'll set my timer on my phone for like 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, and hmm. I'll just hit start and I'll grab a hand file or, or a task and I'm going to sit there and do, and I'll do that. But when that alarm goes off, I need to stand up, stretch out, look all the way up, roll my shoulders back, um, really return to a very, you know, uh, um, kind of like a military uh, 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 position, you know, where you're, 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 you're standing at attention and stuff sure. and really okay. push your shoulders back and, and focus on, on, you know, reminding your body that it needs to stand up straight and be a person again. <laughs> um, and we're all, we're all, we all kind of de, de-evolve into like Gollum, you know, uh, from Lord of the Rings where you just my precious and you're just all hunched over and shit. <laughs> <laughs> but another thing that I do is I actually have a set of gymnastics rings in my shop and I don't do gymnastics, but I do grab I onto them and hang from them. And for 30 to 40 seconds at a time, just, just dead hangs. Um, sure. that really helps stretch the shoulders out and, and straighten things out. Um, so yeah, there's just simple tasks. I should probably put together maybe a little video of basic exercises you can do against the wall, um, or hanging from a oh pull-up bar, just things. And it isn't about the intensity. It isn't like, you know, you're going to the gym and you're getting swole. 
it's basically just the consistency of reminding your body that it has to function as a person that stands upright. Right. Um, because we adapt to what we we adapt to what we put into our bodies, and if you put into your body a really crunched forward and what we call that anterior tilt of the neck and the shoulders, um, or hyperkyphosis, if you want to look up big words in Latin, um, that you become that because you do that. But if you counteract it with with what you want is standing more upright and at attention, then you need to counteract those things by doing that as well and setting a timer um, to do that. Is, is a consistent way to remind yourself, hey, I need to stand up like a person again. Um, and it'll make a big difference for you. It'll keep that burning sensation from in between your shoulder blades that just creeps. Because you know when you're on the grinder and it's like, it just starts to burn and ache, but you're like, oh, I got to keep this plunge line going or whatever like right. that. I've played that game where I like keep on fighting through because I'm in the groove. But I've learned that, you know what, I'm really feeling this and my body's telling me something. So stand up, stretch, walk around. And when you get back to the grinder, you might find that you're, you're, you have a little more clarity and you can see things you didn't see before. You're like, oh, well, maybe if I put the blade this way, I'm going to get to that plunge line and clean it up. And, and um, you know, it's going to be a result that I'm really looking for and I can reproduce on the other side. Versus... Yeah. I sure hope I get it on there right and um, don't scratch something funny so I have to fix it later. <laughs> right. No, and I know exactly what you're talking about, about feeling like, oh, I've come this far already and I feel like I'm in a good groove. I feel like if I set this down, I'm not going to be able to get back into that. But I tell you what, I have never regretted setting something down, walking away, um, you know, maybe decide instead of pushing through lunch to try to get something done, just set it down, go have lunch or, or do some stretching or find another task to kind of, kind of take my mind off of what I'm working on at that exact moment. And when I come back to it, um, I, I feel, I do, I feel way more refreshed. I feel like I, I have a, a clearer mind to approach the thing whatever the task is like the other day, actually I was, I'm doing these videos, um, these forging videos that are, uh, just like informational things. And I was, I, the second one I was working on, I was getting super frustrated with, I felt like I, I just could not, I couldn't get it right. And I was, I, I couldn't figure out, you know, the right camera angle and I'm trying to forge and describe stuff all at the same time. And finally I was just like, this is fucking stupid. And I turned off the forge. I set the knife down. I went in, I had lunch, I actually took a midday like meditation break. And then, uh, after, you know, coming after having, you know, taking like a nice little like hour break from it, came back, got back to it. I, I kind of created a plan before I started working again, because I think that was the problem. It was, I was trying to do too many things all at the same time. And I didn't really have a very good plan in my brain. Uh, before I even started. And so I'd been struggling with it up to that point. And so before I got back to it, I figured out a plan, got back to it. And it, the rest of it went so smoothly. I, I did. I was so glad that I had stopped and taken that break because, um, yeah, it just, it makes a huge difference. I think it makes a really big difference. And I'll tell That's... you what, there's so many, there've been so many times that I've regretted not stopping. Yes. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I, yes. There are a lot of times where I'm like, I should have just stopped and set that damn thing down and come back to it later. So Yes. Yeah, yeah I I agree with you. And uh, that's why, I mean, I, I, I had, man, it was, 
It was, um, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago, and I still remember this, where I tried to just push through, and I had this weird thing where I was, I, I have my own shop now, so I have the environment pretty well controlled. I set up the lighting the way I like it, but at the time I was, I was renting shop space, and one of my light sources was a window. And I love the natural okay. light, and it was great. However, the way that I was grinding them, when you're grinding on a sword, I mean, it, hours turn into days. And it just it's just one of those things when you get really into a project, it happens. But the, yeah. the challenge that I didn't accommodate for is that light in the window changed with the sun. And as the light changes, the shadow changes. And so I would mm. get one side going amazing, and then the other side would be like amazing but different <laughs> and then i would try sure. to make my other side amazing but different too but it's like i i kept on chasing two really good sides but they were so far apart uh in a way that that on a sword that that i i, I got so frustrated i ended up ruining the piece um oh, and it was like an order that would already already been filled you know it was thousands of dollars and um yeah and i realized that look when you know that rule that i made for myself if you make two mistakes if you make one mistake and you can't and you you try to fix it and make another mistake you need to just set that piece down and come right, back like when the that. lighting is different when you're different when when you know when you're ready to do this um the best pieces that we ever make as makers are the ones that make themselves they're the ones that you get up in the morning and you can't wait to get your coffee in you so you can get out there and and work on it again you know, I have that yeah. titanium sword out there waiting for me. I just put carbon fiber on the handle, and I'm like, dude, I hope that carbon oh, yeah. fiber is all cured up after night, uh, overnight, and I get to go work on it again, because it's it's like making itself because it's super exciting sure. and stuff. It and that's back to what I said before. Give yourself the time to be able to do those projects that that you are so excited to see them come to fruition, because they're doing something new for you. Um, and uh, and then break up those periods of time so that your body doesn't get destroyed by doing that. Because when you're super excited about it and you're going to stay there on the grinder or the disc grinder or the, or, or, or hand sanding or whatever, that's when you're going to destroy yourself because you're, you're excited and you're trying to push through, but it's not worth it. Just, just break up the time, take care of your body, make sure you're hydrated. Um, I have a problem. I've had a problem for years with kidney stones ever since I was a little kid. If I get too into a project and I don't drink enough water, I, it flares up my kidneys, and and that's a different kind of back pain and stuff. Oh, and so, um, I have to I have to be real conscious of drinking water. And so I I make sure I have water. I make sure I I, I set time to take care of myself to go hang from my gymnastics rings, do some stretches against the wall or whatever. And uh, it it makes for a big difference. It 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 doesn't it doesn't feel like knife making is defeating me as a human. Sure. Um, yeah, so you mentioned, uh, how you set a timer and something I, you know, I, like I said, I've been struggling with like productivity and feeling productive. And <clears throat> one of the things I came up, uh, or, or read about and discovered was this technique called the Pomodoro technique. And it's, it gets its name from, uh, you know, like those little plastic tomato kitchen timers uh, oh little Pomodoro. egg timers yeah 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 and so basically the maximum those go for is like 25 minutes or something like that and so uh -huh. or i mean i'm sure they're all over the place but that's kind of the scientific research has actually gone in and figured out um you know how how people can be most productive especially it, you know there are some tasks that you just can't stop 
at or maybe like if you if you have a desktop and you're in the middle of a meeting you can't just stop and say excuse me my timer went off i need to step out and take a break uh there it's not going to be something you can do all the time but when you are you you know you're going to be standing at the grinder and grinding blades all day or sculpting handles all day or you're going to be hand sanding for a long period of time setting a timer like that or even they have pomodoro apps um where you can break your day up and say you know and actually they they also have activity trackers too so you can say you know and, and write in your own things and you say hand sanding set the timer and then it keep it keeps a log actually so you can kind of see your progress progress you've been making but um I've been trying to be more conscious about breaking up my days in that way um, because I do have a habit of just getting on a task and, and then I'll be there. Like I used to, I don't really do it anymore, but I would stand at the grinder and grind a blade for like three hours or multiple blades for oh, yeah. three to four, six hours and not, and think, and part of me was like, yeah. Oh yeah, there's like this masochistic, like taking pride in, Oh, I did that for like for a really long time. And then ultimately I'm like, I should not have done that for so long. My back feels terrible. My body feels terrible. And so I, I love what you're saying about how basically yeah. whatever you're doing, if you're, especially if you're like standing at the grinder or you're hunched over, uh, how you how you related it to reminding your body that you're a human, you're a biped, you're supposed to stand up straight, kind of at attention, and basically kind of doing the opposite of what of whatever the task at hand is making you do, um, and rolling. So like like you said, like kind of stretching your shoulders and rolling your shoulders back, looking up versus you know hunched down and shoulders rolled in, standing at the grinder or hand standing. Um, so and and then also the hangs yeah yeah Yeah. i don't have a lot of videos of me actually because i i don't have really anybody to film in my daughter could come in sometime but i don't want to throw her on a on a uh a mask and all that other stuff to film me and stuff because i'm making all the dust and but um i actually have a lot of different grinding techniques that i've had to develop to um to be able to withstand those long grinding sessions um, and I do a lot of, uh, my, my grinders quite a bit higher than most people's. Um, okay. and then I do a lot of grinding seated, um, but for my swords and stuff in particularly because of the way I approach the, the platen, uh, to give me a, a mechanical advantage on, uh, on materials. Sure. But, but yeah, there's a lot of different techniques, not just the standard, you know, perpendicular to the platen and, and look down at it and edge up. And there's there's a lot of different techniques to, to move material and get shapes that, that you, you otherwise may not be able to achieve and stuff. And those are things, um, I mean, obviously, if someone comes to my shop and we work on pieces, those are things I talk with Sam about uh, for grinding yeah. swords and that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of different things you can do to take care of yourself that way, because... You really have to look at it. The um, you, usually one knife or sword isn't going to make or break you. It's the it's the accumulation of of what you what you make and and the the journey that you get to take with this trade or or this this. I don't I don't know if it's a trade or if it is um uh you know a passion or if it's our, I I still call it a hobby. That's why I haven't turned it into like Kefler Blade Works or Kefler Knife mm. Factory or whatever like that. I'm just sure. I'm Dan Kepler. I like to make I like to make you know blades that I want to see exist in the world, and uh, and and no one else is going to make them, so I, I might as well do it. 
Sure. I love it. Um, so really quick, just if, if you could highlight the main pointers about kind of like basic things people can do, um, to help take care of their backs throughout their work day. I really like the setting a timer using an app. I just use the iPhone. It has a timer system in it because I listen to a lot of podcasts while I'm grinding, especially I listen to this podcast. I've actually listened to every episode of this podcast um, because of all the grinding I do uh, and and shop time, I I go through a lot of podcasts. Um, But setting that timer... Um, 20 to 30 minutes and just hit it, letting it on repeat. And every time it goes off, it's going to go off in your ear, or at least it's going to cut your podcast when it goes off. Um, and that just reminds you, you know, to take, give yourself two to three minutes of just, you know, 30 seconds to 40 seconds of hanging from, from a rafter or a pull-up bar or something like that. And then just rolling your shoulders back and pulling your chin back, uh, and then doing some back bends where you just hold your hips and just look up at the ceiling and bend backwards and this is all just slow and controlled none of it's like to to start sweating or be a workout it's all just to like say yeah my body can still move those directions and stuff and if there's an area where you're challenged a little bit focus on that focus on say if you can only look up you know uh halfway instead of being able Mm -hmm. to you know basically make your forehead parallel to the ceiling just work on that just look up and be like i can go this far and count to 10 Maybe I can oh, go sure. two degrees more and count to ten. Just just remind your body to, to, to stand upright. That that in itself will make a really big difference for everybody. I mean it's 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 a small step that can that has a huge amount of payoff. And then if that's not enough for you, then somehow get a hold of me and I can tell you a bunch more things. But I don't think anybody's gonna remember more than just that to start with. Sure. The timer's important and then just maybe three movements. Hanging from something, looking up at the ceiling. Um, and then bending backwards. When you're doing the back bend, real quick, are your feet together? Or are they kind of shoulder width apart, kind of like in a jump stance? Uh, I would say from a wider? jumping stance. Like if you were going to okay. jump. Yeah. If, okay. It just a, if you were going to jump off of okay. both feet, just that stance right there, slight bend in the knees. And you don't okay. want to go to like where, you know, you're going to pull something in your abdomen or something like that. You're just going to go back to your, you know, what you're capable of. Just just reminding your body that it, it can bend backwards. Because sure. we already know it can bend forward and stay there in front of a grinder or hand sanding for hours at a time if, you, if you're doing right. it wrong. So, well, yeah. since we're since we're talking about grinders, I want to bring up our our another sponsor of ours is Broadbeck Ironworks. They are manufacturers of two by seventy two inch knife grinders. They are knife makers themselves, so they've designed these grinders to be super intuitive and and functional for knife makers. Um, they're super versatile. Uh, they have long platen and long work rests, so they have a lot of space for longer blades or even if you pull the platen off and you're doing slack belting which i really appreciate is that you have a lot of clearance in there um for any kind of contouring that you're doing because i do a lot of really heavy rounding and contouring and i need a lot of extra space when i built my first grinder you know i built it to have i think there's like 10 inches or 11 inches between the wheels 
so that I just have all the space that I can get possibly get so that uh, I can do all the work in there. But they uh, not only is it kind of like it has the standard position, but it's also a pivoting grinder. So it pivots to a horizontal back and forth between horizontal and vertical. They got all types of uh, attachments and attachment arms that they're developing to help make the work uh, easier and, and more intuitive for makers. And uh, you don't need a wrench. Uh, so some some of the tool arms and, and other manufacturers, uh, you know, you need your whatever is it, what is it, 9 uh wrench to get in there or, or a 14 millimeter <laughs> yeah. to, get in, to get in and loosen and tighten and adjust things. And they have those kind of quick ratchet uh, kind of handles for all cool. their tightening and loosening. So they're super sweet. They're very well designed, very well engineered. Go check out Broadback Ironworks at broadbackironworks.com. Um, they're also on Instagram, Broadback Ironworks. Um, yeah. Thank you to them for being a sponsor for the show. Uh, I just want to jump back in actually really quick about you talking about these uh, different positions and techniques that you have for grinding. And we don't have to get too heavy in it. I just, if you have plans on doing that in the future, please let me know about putting videos out. I'll make sure to help okay. share those out because I always think, you know, I, I keep, I feel like, and I probably said this to you before, I feel like I have uh, the back of an 80 year old in the body of a 35 year old. And I think a lot of it is just from my own bad habits, but you know, the, the work is very hard on your body, especially on your upper back. Um, yes. And especially if you're not doing a good job kind of, uh, treating or, you know, just doing basic movements and stretches to help keep it in tune. Um, and I, I, I kind of, from time to time, especially on long days of grinding, uh, knives or blades or handles, I, I, visualize myself or try to visualize myself even you know 10 or 20 years down the line and wonder how am i going to keep doing this work or how is it going to change um so that i can keep doing this work when i'm you know in my 50s or 60s you know i just don't i don't know how that's going to play out really because it seems you know it seems like uh it seems right now it doesn't seem very feasible <laughs> one, I mean, one thing you could do, uh, uh, you know what you could do. No, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just saying. No, um, no. Uh, one thing, uh, I'll, I'd invite you to my shop, um, because I think you live about a two and a half hours drive away from me, or so, maybe yeah, three, probably far. only two now because no one's on the roads. But, um, yeah. yeah, dude, we could, we could shoot some videos of, of positioning and that kind of stuff just to show different ways to move material. And I mean, I move a lot of material cause I'm grinding, you know, uh, abrasive resistant materials and, sure. and 30 inch blades, you know, right. um, uh, I could, you know, that might be cool to make some videos of different techniques I use. Uh, to do that, um, and and show me some of your techniques and stuff. It's uh, the cross pollination is awesome when when knife makers get together and we we share stuff. Um, that's a lot of what this podcast has done. I think that's why it's been really successful. Um, but yeah, we we should we should plan a meetup, uh, and and that way, uh, you know, we'd have someone that can run a camera and and do some demonstrations and stuff. We work together on that. I think that would be a cool thing to do. So, yeah, that's an invite. Awesome. I love it. And it would, I mean, really, I'd be winning the whole time because 
like I said before, at the, I think at the top of the show, you're, you are an incredibly talented chiropractor, uh, Thank out you. of all the different people I, I've been adjusted by in my past. Um, you, you have been able to get movement in my back that usually is a struggle for a lot of other people. And it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty incredible. And it's, you know, chiropractic, you know, I, I think people, a lot of people have varying opinions on chiropractic. But I'll tell you a quick story myself, you know, my back went out when I was 26 years old. Um, you know, I've had a lot of back pain, uh, just various back pain throughout my life, just from doing stupid stuff or, or, you know, at one time I worked at Lowe's. And so, you know, I would lift a 20 foot extension ladder from just like five or six feet from one end. And I pivoted up from laying down up to upright just because yeah. I could, I had the strength and I could do it. But ultimately that is really bad for your body to do. That is really bad. Like yes. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I would have back pain from time to time. And this one time, uh, you know, I was getting my day started. It felt great when I woke up. Um, and, and as I, my day progressed, my morning progressed, getting ready for the day. Uh, I started to feel a little twinge here and there. And I was like, Oh, you know, it's, it's that normal back pain, but it, it progressed into something I had never experienced before, which was just nonstop pain, no matter if I was standing up or sitting down or laying down or walking or standing still, like nothing hurt, nothing felt good. Everything yeah. was painful. And at that point I realized something was wrong and it was, uh, I, I was fortunate to have a friend who is a chiropractor and, um, I went in, did some work with him and, you know, he got me back at least to where I was functional within, the, within a month. Um, but it's, it's what I have learned from, from being, uh, you know, from working with him, uh, just, just my own physical awareness of my body and, and listen, I think that's the biggest thing I learned about going to chiropractors, learning how out of tune I was with my body and how much more in tune I am now with my body and knowing when I need to stop and knowing when I need to stretch. Um, just because I know that if I don't, it's gonna just get worse. Um, and maybe it's just something that just comes with age or, or I don't know what, but you know, I just want to say, um, chiropractic, work is is a real thing <laughs> um so oh, yeah yeah and I, love I, mean, it. I i agree <laughs> i i yeah. totally agree and yeah. so yeah i'm glad you're able to get uh some relief from something like that because there's a lot of situations where um you know people are given different pharmaceuticals or or shots or other things and sure. and uh i i believe that like anything, uh, you pay up front or you pay in the back, but everybody mm. pays. And it's right. usually more expensive if it's on the back end. So there right. are times when I see medications and stuff, are, are they're totally appropriate for, for really uh, significant injury and pain management and stuff like that. Sure. But the long-term fix is really addressing addressing the cause and uh, changing changing some habits. And a lot of times you can pick just a few things that are fairly simple but you have to do them consistently. It's it's simple things that are consistent over the long period of time. This is the same thing in knife making. The best yeah. knife makers do, they do each task, they try to make it really simple, but they try to do it really proficiently. And then that, that stair steps up to the next task and the next task. I saw a piece at Blade, I think it was this year or last year, um, that Mike Quisenberry had, and it was uh, uh, a... Um, 
a saber um, that he'd done mm. a bunch of silver work with and stuff. And, and uh, I just looked at that, and all I saw was a whole bunch, like a year's worth of very little precise steps all put together to make this beautiful, elaborate yeah. uh, piece that that I don't think I'll ever achieve that level of, of perfection in what I do. Um, or I hope to get close to it someday and stuff. But yeah. really, it was that piece was not, I mean, you know, he's a, a brilliant maker and really talented, but, but it's his patience and his ability to uh, just make little bits of exceptional progress over a long period of time. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think that's a beautiful, that's a perfect assessment. I, you know, we've been asked that sh question on the show kind of, or, or we've had that conversation on the show about, um, you know, uh, regarding how, you know, making, rushing through things versus taking your time. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the best makers in the world are the people who spend, uh, you know, a, a lot of time and energy on the minuscule steps in the, the intermittent, uh, steps that eventually leads to a phenomenal piece versus rushing to the, to the finish line, just to have a sharp thing with a handle. Um, you know, there's this very two, very different ends of the spectrums and, um, yeah, Mike's Mike work is phenomenal. I, I really admire and look up to him. Um, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, and he's just a, a nice dude. I mean, he's it's always cool guy. when you get that combination of someone who's exceptionally talented and uh, uh, just a person you'd want to hang out with. Like, hey, you're cool, and yeah, Absolutely. that's fun. Yeah, major so, bonus. Yeah. Bonus. Well, I want to talk. <laughs> Yeah, I want to talk to you about your experience with blade sports now and, and your competitive cutting and how many titles do you have now? I almost I wanted to say like eight or something the other day, but yeah, eight I actually total, didn't know. Oh, it is eight. Eight, eight total. Smokes. I've got four world titles and four national okay. titles. Um, okay. Yeah, and uh, my four world titles were consecutive. My national titles, it took me five years to win four. Um, mm. Wow. I, it's a... Uh, yeah, Blade Sports is, is super cool. Unfortunately, right now, because of this pandemic, uh, there's no activity with Blade Sports. It, our, our, our season sure. got canceled um, and stuff. So it will roll into the 2020-2021 the season. We'll roll this season into it and stuff. Okay. But uh, yeah, Blade Sports, a lot of people may not know about it. Um, I think we need to figure out how to how to share what we do with people more because I think there's a lot of misinformation. But to simplify it, our mission statement is to promote the safe use of knives as tools. And one of the ways we do that is we hold these cutting competitions and we use a blade that has a standard measurement. It's uh, 15 inches overall. Uh, we borrowed these measurements from the ABS and, and their test okay. and cut, uh, their, their, um, uh, the, the test knife. It's uh, right. 15 inches overall no wider than two inches and at the blade and then no longer than a 10 inch blade no longer than 10 inches of cutting edge okay and so we have this standard knife and uh we run it through these courses and this courses these courses entail chopping two by fours or two by sixes uh horizontally and vertically um we cut we cut ropes free hanging ropes with target zones and up to uh, some of them, it's not often up to three inches in diameter, but it's like a two inch rope and a one and a half inch manila rope and one inch manila rope all can be in one course. 
We cut sure. uh, hardwood dowels that we chop into. Those are a test of the edge, um, uh, edge stability and, and everything. And then um, rolling targets like golf balls and tennis balls. And so you have this whole obstacle course and you're timed and then you're awarded points for every time you cut something successfully. And then an equation is run and we determine who wins. Uh, sometimes it's the fastest cutter that wins, but most of the time it's the cutter that gets the most points that wins. Uh, so we've we've weighted accuracy. Um, mm, cool thing about blade sports uh, is uh, I'm going to ramble a lot, so let me know if you want to jump great. in. No, you're good. <laughs> cool thing about blade sports is that it's really given us the ability, because we have a standard knife in a way, to test different materials and we have so many years of continually chopping and slicing and competing that it gives us this avenue to really explore new metallurgy because you can take a new steel and uh, you can take it to similar geometry to what's competitive in a blade sports knife and then run it through courses and then a lot of times when we meet up we let other people we we let everybody use our knives and uh, my race knife i don't let everybody use because it can be damaged uh, because it's really well tuned, um, but other like practice knives or other things that I'm experimenting with, I'll hand them to other people and they'll go do stuff that I wouldn't think about doing on a course or try things yeah. a different way. And so overall, we really get a, we've got a lot of information on what materials really do what at what thicknesses at what hardnesses at um, what type of edge geometry, whether a polished edge, whether an edge that has more of a toothy aspect to it, whether it's aggressive for one one target versus another target. Um, so if, if you are talking to someone that participates in blade sports, especially if they've got a few years in, um, they're going to have a wealth of knowledge regarding, especially if they're a knife maker of what works, um, just, just plain what, what absolutely works, what has higher levels of durability, what type of geometries are are better for, for materials if they've really paid attention and stuff. So it's a great it's a great wealth of knowledge. I think a lot of people will tell you their their pieces. Not a lot of people, but I, I'll see people say their stuff is high performance or they have all these accolades to it, but they really haven't done the work as sure. far as testing and stuff. I mean, one of the things I really appreciate about you is that you have a, a background in working in kitchens and you've right. done food prep. So you understand that that tool, not only, I mean, whether it looks good or not, that's that that helps with selling. But when someone uses one of your knives to cut uh, cut up meat and vegetables and everything like that, they they can tell that this was made by a person that has done that for a significant period of time, and sure. and understands what what function is. And that's a, I think that's an avenue that I think is underappreciated at times uh, with with the cutlery industry really really appreciating rewarding those that have done the work and time to know that something is 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 high performance or is exceptional mm-hmm. um yeah but back to yeah, blade I, sports oh go ahead, oh, go ahead. yeah i just Your really turn. quick yeah i've always <laughs> popcorn mark um yes i've I've always, uh, you know, I've, I've been asked that question multiple times over the years or the question, sorry, of, you know, you know, what do you think is your advantage? And I think a lot of, uh, over other makers in the field and the craft and making knives and especially making chef's knives. And I think a lot of people are anticipating like it's my metallurgy or it's my Damascus patterns and all this other stuff or my whatever. But 
the reality is I think the biggest advantage that I have is that I have years of experience in using a chef's knife um, in a production environment. So I'm designing knives based on my extensive experience in slicing, dicing and chopping and mincing and doing all kinds of prep work um, over several hours and, uh, and years, like I said, um, that it helps really inform how the, the tool should be made so that it performs most often optimally. And so um, I appreciate that uh, you noticing that. And I do think a lot of people don't really think of that aspect, you know, um, that the value of knowing how to use the tool that they're making, you know, I think, um, I, I think it's, I think it's great that there are a lot of people making chef's knives. It just shows that, you know, while chef's knives, I still think are kind of, kind of the unsung hero and underrated knife. They are literally the most used knife around the world. Um, in almost every household, every day of the year. 365. Yeah. Right? And so, um, but I think, you know, while I, I have make, made hunting knives, I've made Bowie knives, um, you know, I, I could never be, stand behind them um, as, as I do behind my chef's knives and say, you know, this, this could be the best Bowie knife or hunting knife or skinning knife or whatever that you've ever used because the reality is I don't really know how that tool is used. And so I can't really make that claim. Um, but with chef's knives, I kind of can. And oh, yeah. I think that's, that's why I choose, choose to make chef's knives. And I think that's definitely my advantage is knowing that tool. Um, but I do, I would really love, like, I think it'd be awesome to come do like a, a, a course with you and just to, and to better understand like really hard use kind of camp slash Bowie style knives that just get the shit kicked out of them. Um, and doing all these, or I guess they kick the shit out of other stuff, ideally, uh, getting all these different tasks done. Um, but you know, the same thing with like, uh, somebody who do, who's a hunter and, and so what are they looking for in a hunting knife? And I know that there's also a lot of, there's a wide spectrum on how, you know, blade profile and geometry and, and, and sharpness and all that kind of stuff that goes into using a knife, a hunting knife. But I would love to start getting some of these various perspectives so that I have a better, uh, so that I am better informed on how those knives are being used. But ultimately, I always focus on chef's knives. Uh, I don't know why I went down that whole diatribe of chef's knives. But anyways. Oh, no, um, it... it you're but that's that's what you do and and that's i mean that's one of the things that the we appreciate about you in the in the knife community is is that you have i mean i've called you about different things like that uh, about the expertise that you have and i mean i'm a, a a multiple time world champion uh cutting competition winner but i'm not a world champion food prep person you know like i don't <laughs> that geometry is different than my geometry now here's the thing though like through blade sports i'm trying to get my geometry closer to what your geometry is and sure. still be able to chop two by fours and 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 hardwood dowels and and trees and and firewood you know because of the the the, the capabilities of the metallurgy and this yeah. is a thing that I, I i distinguish people say their knife is high performance um for whatever they do but the the goal is the science is that thin just cuts better 
it, it just right. i mean now uh, there but there's limitations to thin because thin is less durable i remember saying that you know when you when you make a knife and you want it to perform you want it to be tough you want it to be thin and you want the edge to be hard but you can only usually pick two with most steels so sure so but with a better understanding of metallurgy, some of the testing that we've been able to do, we've been able to thin out uh, a lot of these knives, especially the edge and the the overall cutting geometry, and still maintain what I would consider a, a level of durability that is that is high performance and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we know what that limit is because we've taken steels to that limit and we've gone past that limit and we've broken. I mean, I have a wall full of broken competition choppers of different geometry, different heat treat, different uh different things uh just different designs and and uh and i know how they damage and why and 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 what what is to be learned from that and stuff um i see a lot of these knives made and they're just i I call them sharpened pry bars and people (laughs) tout they tout their their high performance or their durability and the challenge is is it's well, it's not hard to make a super durable piece of metallurgy. I mean, there, it's really hard to beat a half-inch thick piece of, you know, spring-tempered uh, 5160. That's, that's going to be sure. pretty much indestructible unless you're using hydraulics and, and, and some other form of nuclear reaction sure. and stuff. Um, but what if you want stuff in the in the high rock wells you know in the 60 plus range and you want uh you know geometry that's you know 15 thousandths thick before you sharpen it at at a uh, 15 to 17 degrees per side and you want to oh, chop wow. you know hardwood with that or 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 something and you want it to survive and and continue to stay sharp and and work uh that's a that's what i consider high performance because those pieces allow you to appreciate what the tool doing the work for you sure. um and you don't have to fight it in fact it's exciting and fun to use much like the handle designs you, um i i've had knives that i feel like they punish you for using like if you actually go to use <laughs> them you know like yeah. 2 minutes into it you're like dude things are going to cramp i i am not enjoying this and uh Sure. This I'm fighting. I'm fighting this piece, but a good piece almost has intuition. It it like it it it's like a car that drives itself in a way, or a car that predicts what you want it to do. You know, mm. you you're going up to this corner, and the car's like, yeah, I got this. We're gonna we're gonna go into this corner this fast, and you're gonna exit and hit the apex and all the things. You know, a knife can do that as well. Like, and and that's a, a kitchen knife can do that. And I've held and worked with those knives before, and I'm like. I just want to I just want to make pico de gallo because I got to cut all the things yeah. and stuff. And and that's what I want my pieces to do when people use them in the field or when they have one of my swords. They're just like I think I could cut the world in half with this thing. And stuff. That's the goal. So you started talking about geometries a little bit. Um well, I guess not just a little bit, but you you have mentioned just now 15,000 at the edge. Um sharpened at 15 degrees either side for an overall it sounds like 30 degree battle. 30 to 30 to 8 30 to, to 32 34 you know sure. playing in that geometry um depending on like a, a practice knife will have a little thicker geometry because you're going to expose it to things that a race knife would you would limit a race knife being exposed to but yeah yeah you play in those 
And that way, if I if I want to hand a knife to a novice and I don't want him to damage it right away, um, I can change my geometry just a little bit. They're they're gonna not really tell that there's a decrease in cutting performance, but they're gonna definitely tell that there's an increase in durability. Right. Um. So can you talk about your? I mean, I don't know if this is a trade secret for you or not but uh can you talk a little bit more about your geometries and various geometries across because what you the the competition knives like you mentioned you know they're designed to not only cut fine things like you know like straws straw yeah and and paper (laughs) but uh but also be durable enough to withstand the impact of chopping through multiple two by fours uh and and hardwood dowels how you know what is what is the geometry that you found if you don't mind sharing is most optimal for that kind of work and obviously it reflects uh you know it's a it's a heavy question because it reflects mm-hmm. also this type of steel and the heat treating schedule but um you know can you just talk about geometries a bit and what you've you what you've discovered and found over the years so a primary bevel when i say primary bevel i mean the actual shape that takes you to the to the edge now there's the Sorry. Um, what, let's 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 go over terms really quick. Sure. Um, there's the some people think that some people say the primary bevel is the the edge that is sharpened. If you if you or or some people call that a secondary bevel. So the actual part that's making contact with um, the median at first. That's that's cutting. You know the material that has its own geometry, but then also the geometry of the knife. Meaning, mm-hmm. if we just say it's a wedge, um, you know, what that angle of the wedge is. And for competition, you generally have to be, uh, to to be competitive, you have to be under 10 degrees inclusive. So a grind oh, wow. bevel of 5 degrees per side or less. I've run, an, right. I've run, I've run as low as 4.2 or so uh, per side. Um, with some modifications to the grind that um, I don't, eh, I don't share as much, just because. That's fine. Uh, That's but <laughs> but that geometry will get you dangerous. The problem is, is very few steels over a two-inch wide blade can handle that type of geometry because you're going to end up with a, you end up with a thin edge because even before sharpening it, that thing will sh- that thing will chart will will chop just because it's um, it's it's geometry is is so aggressive. And um, you're actually when you're cutting wood, um, you're actually just you're you're dividing the cells of the cellular wall of the plant. Uh, it, it's 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 just cell walls, and you want to basically that blade just penetrates in there. This is gonna get yeah. It, it's you you divide the material. Um, versus versus you know just pulverizing it a lot of geometry would just it just pulverizes the wood you're actually slicing just like you're slicing a carrot or a piece of celery it's just a little more resistance because it's wood but right. it'll behave the same if you apply the right force with the right geometry um if you look at my videos on my instagram when i'm chopping wood you'll see that i'm actually slicing the board on my my knife is is it's dividing the wood versus just um pulverizing it and stuff the cuts are very clean um so that geometry allows you to do that better very few steels that i've found can handle that geometry when you put full power into it um 
and that's where being really consistent so that if you take a material and you have to tweak it a little bit you know that you're not dealing with a difference in a previous step whether how the steel was made or something like that that could also change that that you can't account for um so yeah that uh, under 10 degrees inclusive of that primary thing and then you can put all different kinds of edges on that if you want full competitive you start going 15 uh, degrees per side and sometimes less than that if you have a um if you're a skilled cutter i have knives that i've won championships with that um at sections of the blade are less than five thousandths before sharpening um super super thin but that's only in a section of the blade because i understand how the knife works that's i you only use that section of the blade to cut stuff like rope and straws and and um materials that are not heavily resistant if i were to go try to chop like a, a hardwood oak dowel with that section if my if my strike wasn't exactly dialed in if i had any lateral influence that could warp that uh, that could ripple that edge sure. um because it just doesn't have the backing and stuff but uh you're you're playing that it's like when you're racing these we call these race knives they're competition choppers but they're race knives and when you're racing everything is on the everything is on the edge you know you're you're just backed off of totally destroying things um but good enough to make it through and stuff crazy yeah so so you get to learn a lot about a material and so one of the reasons i picked venetus 4 extra with the heat treat protocol that we have going for it um it can run thinner and harder at more aggressive geometries than any steel i've tested now that's not saying there isn't a better steel out there but it's the best one i've tested and then i've been able to test other steels with comparative geometry and they haven't been able to hold out the same and then i've tweaked their heat treats or i've tweaked other things or i found geometry that does work for them and and that might be more applicable for somebody in a different level of cutting capability um so basically that geometry um the cool thing about blade sports is not only do i learn all this stuff have I learned all this stuff through true real-world experimentation and then applied it to competition and then won world championships with it, um, you know, to continue to prove it, it's still changing and we're still improving on it. Uh, and then all that information goes right into my other, my swords, my, I make some hunting knives, not as many. Um, I, I make very few kitchen knives, but the ones I have made, I've applied some of that knowledge too, and I believe sure. it's helped. But you would be the uh, the person to consult on something like that. Um, but you know, it gives you the ability. Like I can take this steel, and I know what it's capable of, so I can take it close to those limits in in other designs. And you know, some of my sword videos, a lot of the penetration that those blades get, you know, when I'm chopping trees or when I'm chopping a two by four in one hit, um, is like, well, what if I took a competition chopper? And if I made it twice as long with twice as much handle, but I kept the geometry relatively the same, and now that's making it because there's so much more power with that much bigger that that uh, with a larger piece like that, could the yeah. material handle it? There's certain designs that are only capable because the material has has the capability to be durable in that shape. Um, I take the example of like um, you look. People, I don't know if people re uh, remember Howard Hughes. He's the person that, that he was a, a 
uh, he designed airplanes as aviator, this guy back in the 30s and 40s, I think. But he, he made the Spruce Goose. And the problem with the Spruce Goose was is it was made out of wood. And it was just the materials weren't the materials weren't able to accommodate the design. But I'm like, what if they made the Spruce Goose with carbon fiber? You know, it it might actually be a really interesting airplane, um, sure. other than just being something that, that's part of history and stuff. Right. Well, now we have the ability to utilize some of these materials uh, that the tool and die industry has has invented um, to be, you know, to make industrial equipment that, you know, like CPM3V is a cold punch or a die shearing steel. I mean, you can make you can make dies that can cut other steel with this stuff because it's heavily chip resistant. Um, the uh, Venatus 4 is in the same classification. PD1 is in the same classification. So the, they have inherent performance characteristics. Well, what if we tweak it a little bit to see if we can carry those performance characteristics into a knife or sword and then apply known geometry through competition with blaze boards and just see what things are capable and take it all the way to the edge to where it's actually going to break and fail and just try not to get hurt in the process uh, and then back off and know where... You can tune something so that you can get the maximal amount of performance and durability alongside. If I want to, I can always make something more durable. I have a knife called the Monster, and it's an over <laughs> half inch piece of 3V, and it's super steep geometry, but I sharpen Holy it to where you can shave your face with it. Um, it's right. a big chopping knife, and it's ridiculous. It's big, thick, and ridiculous, which that's, <laughs> yeah. Um and and you can do about whatever you want. Now the performance is lacking. It, it handles like a tank, you know. I mean, sure. it you can run over shit, but you don't corner really well. Um, I see. But but then you you know so so I can go to the extreme that way, and that's just a fun piece to just running things super thin. Uh, now this titanium, the really cool thing about it is that one of the limitations with swords has always been the weight the longer you get even though it's a it could be a lighter sword even though that it's longer it's just you know the laws of of um, physics always apply and so uh weight will always add up as you add more material well titanium is 40 to 45 percent lighter than steel and the drawback is we just oh, haven't wow. been able to make it hold an edge that's that's good um but now we've got a process and we're able to can we're able to reproduce a really a really good performance edge that i find is comparable to you know a simple carbon steel as far as edge retention and uh we've done a lot of abusive destructive testing with it and uh the things that finally damaged it were things that finally damaged uh you know carbon steels with the same geometry and stuff right. and so it's comparable in that sense um uh, but now I can make these swords that should weigh four pounds and are f almost 50 inches long total, and now they weigh just over two pounds. And that's, that's a huge difference with a sword. And so, like, I've got these videos on, on, on my Instagram channel where I'm chopping down these trees with this, this tritanium or tri-titanium sword that we've... Sam, is, uh, Sam and I worked together. He welded on uh, the... Uh, uh, grade uh, 23 titanium on a grade 38 uh, body uh, using a particular rod. Then we forged and, and heat treated that in my shop. And then I, I turned it into a prototype. 
and I'm out there chopping these trees with it. And it and people ask me, well, how does it compare to like your super assassin model that chops down trees and made out of 3V, which is a, a really interesting design, which is basically an evolution of, of Japanese swords combined with competition choppers to, to sure. achieve ultimate chopping performance. Yeah. Um, and it's funny to compare them because they both do the same size targets in a way where they're, but they achieve it in a different manner. The the titanium sword, the velocity really comes into play. It's like a bullet going much faster. It doesn't have to be as big because you can accelerate it so much quicker that, that the velocity f- carries you through things versus with uh, with the 3V being a, a more dense material, that density uh, carries you through material. And so it's just, mm. a, it's it's two, two sides of, I mean, it's two different ways of approaching something um, but with a sword, if you look back to what swords were for, depending on, on whether they were a dueling sword or they were a battle sword, like a battle sword is going to have more weight and you're going to run into armor and those kinds of things, more like an infantry person. It's just you want to make every blow do some form of damage because, uh, it, you know, the blows are less precise in a way, but, but you're, you're dealing with mass and stuff. Um, but like a fencing sword is more about uh, dueling or, 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 or precise strikes. If you were the first one to the target, you have a huge advantage. So right. now this sword, people go, well, what's the benefit of titanium? Well, I have a longer sword that's lighter. So I have more sure. reach and more speed. And that's a huge advantage regarding the swords. And you achieve, you achieve things a different way. Um, hopefully that's not too confusing for people, but it's what gets me excited and why I, I, I think these projects are, are really interesting. Yeah. No, I think that's really, really interesting. And I think, I, I so, I mean, basically you guys are pioneering this. I'm curious, like based on the, you know, the performance you're getting out of it for a sword, you know, first thing I think is, all right, let's make a chef's knife out of it. I'm curious to see how it performs as a chef's knife, especially, you know, especially if it's equivalent, uh, when it, when it comes to, uh, edge retention to like a 1070 steel, you know, 10 for a basic high carbon steel, 1070 is not a bad steel and it holds, it'll it'll hold an edge quite nicely, uh, for, you know, probably 99% of the human population for basic, uh, you know, cutting tasks. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to see where you guys go with this stuff. If 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 anybody listening has not does not follow Dan, Dan, you're you are Dan underscore Keffler. Can you spell your last name? It's K E F F E L E R. Right. And those are F's as in Frank. For some reason the way I say F's on the phone or recording everybody thinks they're an S as in Sam. But they're actually F's. Okay. So F bombs. We'll just K E F bomb F bomb E L E R. Does that work? <laughs> yeah, no. And go on to his Instagram for sure and check out his videos because uh, the way, he, like the power he's able to uh, and force he's able to create and the way that these knives cut through two by fours, especially like, and like I'm looking at them, I can tell that they're dry based, just based on the way that they kind of blow off the rest of the board and i think it's interesting how you probably design the geometry to help in that not only to slice into the wood very yes. really nicely but to also help kind of 
dispatch that wood away from everything else because the last thing you want to do is make a nice really deep cut and then not be able to strike in that exact same spot to be able to come back and exactly. cut all the way through you want it to blast off i think that's really yep, exactly. it's really interesting yeah the the geometry um the geometry helps you clear chips um when when you're when you're cutting for competition uh fewer strikes is less time and time is a factor and yeah. if you're cutting material you've already cut, then you're just wasting time. And so ideally, um, part of my chopping technique and part of my designs um, really focus on getting uh, clearing, clearing pieces of wood. Um, and, you know, when it's done successfully, you can see, like, I have a video up. Uh, I posted it a year or two ago where I chop a two by six in three hits with a 10-inch with a uh, knife. I was um, just looking at that and one last night. The thing is, is like a third of the board flies off every time I chop it. And we're talking about like over a foot long, over, uh, you know, nine to, to, to 12 inches of of wood. It's not, I'm not just cutting the end off. I'm actually dividing sure. the, this whole board. And, uh, and the way the wood fractures or the way the wood flies away, I don't have to hit it again. And, uh we call this thing, I call it the pit of death when you're chopping a two by four or when you're chopping a tree or something like that. And your scarf is too narrow and it, you, you start, you're, you come to the bottom of the V, but you still got, you know, a significant amount of material to get through. And because the scarf isn't wide enough and you haven't, and the, and the chips haven't cleared, you're just pounding this knife and then you start compressing wood grain versus slicing wood grain and wood mm. is really, really co resistant to compression. In a lot of ways, wood and bone tissue are very similar because they. Um, I've done a lot of anatomy and physiology from my from a doctorate. Um, sure. Bone tissue, uh, it has. There's different forces that get applied to bone tissue. Um, compressive forces are the primary force that gets applied to that. So, you know, you're standing on your long bones, your back, it, you know, everything is compressive. Gravity is pulling down sure. on them. So bone is really resistant to compression. Um, bending or, or lateral forces. So like, um, it's fairly, um, it's fairly resistant to, but if you, you know, you, when you see jujitsu that exploits the bone breaking is actually exploiting bending a bone. But Oof. if you really want to, <laughs> if you really want to mess bone up, add rotation um, or mm, and, and rotation or spiraling of the bone. Like, um, you know, so you've got like a long axis and you're twisting opposite directions of both end. That's actually where bone is the weakest. Well, wood is very similar to that. If you see like in a windstorm when branches break off, you'll see a lot of times they twist um, right. When they break off, they don't just break cleanly off. There's a twisting, and that's actually what what created the weakness there. So when I'm chopping wood, I'm actually imposing a force that divides the and and applies a twisting force, and that's how the chips clear. Because you're not on, and it, so if you strike a board perpendicular, you're just compressing, and you're actually fighting the wood at its strongest. But if you change your angle and you have um, your geometry, why it actually divides and twists the wood, and that's how you get uh, more penetration in a target. It's oh, a, that's so um, interesting. But the same thing works with a sword, and 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 um, you know, like if I'm, uh, I've tested my my blades on on different carcasses, um, for you know, uh, dealing with live tissue and stuff. If I've wanted to process, uh. 
um, beef or, or pork or, or whatever. I've, I've used my swords to, to quarter animals and stuff um, for our freezer. And you apply those same things to bone just as you would to chopping wood. Mm. So, cool. so yeah, there's a little piece of information. I love it. So we were talking about grinding the materials and how that varies. Is that the same? Is it? I, I imagine it's the same problem with hand sanding, right? <laughs> Speaking of hand sanding. <laughs> Are you getting ready to do a lot of hand sanding on that giant sword? No, no, I actually have a lot of powered processes. Um, you know, oh, Jeff nice. Vader talks about using the the um, Rhino Wet on the disc grinder, and I do that as well. I saw those videos um, years ago with Nick Wheeler, who really, I think Nick Wheeler's like the pioneer of Rhino Wet, as far as I know. Sure. Um, uh, really bringing it into the forefront. And, um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I also use uh, the Rhino Wet for, for a lot of the sanding uh, applications. And it's, it's a really good, a really good median and stuff. Um, but I do a lot less hand sanding than people would think. I've been able to uh, do stuff with my grinder, which I'll, I'll show you, um, that creates creates hand sanding but you don't have to kill yourself to do it especially on mm. you know i i do blades that are that are pretty big i mean there's a lot yeah. of surface area with i mean i've got a sword right now that is in titanium that is 48 inches total um but the blade is about 32 inches by two inches wide um and that's a lot of surface area. That is a lot um, of surface to, area. <laughs> I'm not going to hand sand that, but I, I'm going to put a, a finish on it that looks like it's hand sanded, um, because I'm applying the, I'm applying the same principle of slowly moving different grits over it, but applying a couple things regarding making a slurry, as well as using motorized um, assistance, so that I don't, you know, develop carpal tunnel in my elbows and my wrists and stuff like that on sure. a sword that big and stuff but yeah um yeah hopefully that answered some questions yeah i mean so you talked about also that you have different techniques i guess you already kind of mentioned it a little bit so you have t different techniques for your blade grinding so it sounds like you also have the same kind of thing for and we don't need to necessarily go into it but um for your kind of hand sanded aesthetic or hand sanded finish look um that where you're using your machine to do that with interest it's interesting to hear you're creating it. I'm so curious how you're using a, a slurry and, and the machine, but, um, well, I, I use my flat platen. And so basically I approach my flat platen like it's a water stone and I okay. slow my belt grounder down really slow. And I have, uh, I have an IV bag full of yeah. a solution of, of very diluted, simple green and water that is dripping, you know, one drop about every three to four seconds. And okay. I uh, and I have the belt just going really slow over my platen, and I approach it like it's a whetstone, where I you know lay it flat and use the angles and and just kind of work through the scratches. And the belts that I use, um, I find for polishing, uh, even with these really abrasive materials. And this is one of the things I also found works well with the the um, combat abrasives. One would think that hard abrasives are really good at at hard materials, but sometimes using a, 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 an abrasive that isn't quite as hard. So on the hierarchy, you know, these, um, I, I found like the, the ceramic abrasives would achieve the highest hardness 
Um, but then yeah. you've got you've got silicon carbide and aluminum oxide. I use the aluminum oxide belts, a lot of the finishing belts, because they seem to break down a little. They break down and create a slurry along with the wet, the the simple sure. green solution. And it creates what I call a blended finish. Because say if I start with a 320 grit belt, a lot of that grit gets turned into 400 and maybe even 600 grit. Sure, as it crushes through and, and yeah. wears away. Yeah. And there's a lot of Japanese stones, so I'm running my belt grinder so slow that it's not throwing that against the wall. Although, if you look at my belt grinders where I wet grind, there's like big old spiders. It's like my <laughs> belt grinder had diarrhea forever. Um, <laughs> it's just that scene from Dumb and Dumber. Tasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> and my walls are white too, so it's just, it's so good. Um, but, but the, the, as the belt breaks down, and and continues to polish and then don't be afraid to just grab another belt i mean i order my finishing belts you know 30 40 at a time sometimes sure. and just bricks of them and then um you know work through that progress uh and then changing your angle of approach to to see which scratches went which way and then and then finish as you want to um yeah. and then also understanding that if i'm cutting on a flat platen uh, I get it's good for keeping things flat, but a wheel will a wheel at different diameters will cut more aggressively. However, if you don't have a if you run the wheel too fast and don't have enough movement, you get that belt jump look where it goes up up. It'll look like sure. washboard and stuff. Yeah. Even if you can't feel it with your fingers, you can still see it and stuff. So slowing the belt down and utilizing the wheel or utilizing the platen, depending on how you want to cut the material or polish. Um, you mm. can you can change that finish accordingly, and uh, and it, it still is time consuming, but it's way better than than taking little pieces of sandpaper and and gluing them or <laughs> taping them to something and then just sitting there and and uh, and and doing those motions over and over again. And I and one of the reasons I do it the way I do it is because when I send out a piece to people, all of my pieces are designed to be used. I love making the aesthetics of my pieces, you know, really, you know, just what I would consider heirloom grade and and something sure. that you can aesthetically be proud of, but everything is designed for high performance and I very rarely make the compromise for aesthetics over performance. If I can get both at once, that's my favorite. And so that's why I mean I use a lot of titanium fittings for my Japanese mounts because they add a lot of strength to the to the thing but they also are reduced weight and I can I can texture and color them and do all sorts of designs in them that that give a, another level of presentation but there's no compromise in durability or um stuff like a great example would be like when people use nickel on the edge of a of of Damascus because it's so bright mm. and and that sure. but that blade is not a user it's 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 a it's a, it's a heirloom piece that is to be looked at, but you go cut something, that nickel edge is going to be dulled immediately. Right. Um, but, but so back to finishing, uh, I expect people to use my pieces as they see me use them in the videos and stuff. That's, that's, that's my testing. It's like, I'm doing this because somebody's going to try this with this piece. Maybe, I don't know. I sure. mean, and, and, but when you cut down trees or you cut two by fours, you scratch your blade. It's, it it's, I've not been able to find a way not to scratch blades when I do serious cutting. Even my competition choppers, even though they're very yeah. high Rockwell, um, they still get scratched because there's pieces of dirt or silica or whatever on whatever you cut. And 
And so these finishes that I have, I'm able to get these pieces back in shop if, if, if my customer wants me to. And I have a process that I put the blade through that I know how long it's generally going to take me to, to, to get it back to the fact, not factory, get back to my hand finish or my... Yeah. My hands are touching the blade the whole time, so I'm going to call it a hand finish. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, yeah, that, it's not automated, that's for sure. You're doing, no, you're, no, your I'm automated. My, it's, it's automated with my hands moving the blade onto an abrasive with my head. That, I think that's, that's hand finished, right? <laughs> I, I would consider that a hand finish. Whenever yeah. the hands are guiding the process, I call that hand, hand, handmade, hand work. Because um, otherwise... It's either not being done or it's completely automated. So. Yeah, we I hear that argument come back and forth. People are like, and and Jeff has the great answer for this. You know, when is it handmade? When is it factory? Whatever. It's like that. It's just just don't lie to people. And I, I love yeah. that answer. Just absolutely don't don't lie to people. And and you will find somebody for whatever you do if you do it with if you if you're doing something of quality. Um, there's always going to be somebody that will appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, so since we've been talking about hand sanding and sandpaper, I, I just want to give a quick shout out to Indasa USA, uh, who are the creators of Rhino Wet uh, and one of our favorite sponsors, uh, along with their partner, Texas Farrier Supply, uh, who is a great resource uh, for these products. You can go to Texas Ferry Supply and with Knife Talk 10 at checkout, you can save yourself 10% um, on anything you buy from there, especially the sandpaper, but also handle materials and whatever else you might get uh, from them. So go get your hands on some uh, Rhino Wet, whether it's the red line, black line, whatever. The, what the, They do have different lines really quick. There's the dry stuff and there's the wet stuff. What's really great about the wet is that it has a, a thin film of latex in it that helps keep it together better than the dry stuff when you start doing wet work. Um, so if you're going to do some wet hand sanding, um, it's definitely the way to go. I still like, even though I don't do wet hand sanding, I still like using it because overall it just holds together better. And I do, I'm one of those dummies, like you were mentioning earlier, who sticks a piece of sandpaper on uh, the sanding stick and scrubs away. But when I go to pull that sandpaper off, instead of it shredding and tearing apart into a hundred pieces, it comes off usually as one solid piece. Um, yeah, that the, the that latex makes a big difference. So again, go check out uh, Texas Ferry Supply for your Rhino Wet sandpaper needs, made by Indasa USA. You've knife use Knife Talk Ten at checkout to save yourself ten percent uh, on your order. Nice. nice, nice. All right. So one last thing, I thought, or it sounds like you got something you want to say. No, no, I'm I'm ready for the one last okay. thing or whatever I'm, this is fun I'm yeah doing this. so <laughs> last i guess more formal conversation piece i want to talk to you about is kind of the, uh, the difference between stock removal and forging you always hear uh you know the idea that forged is better than stock removal but i think realistically what that harkens back to is just marketing more than anything and in necessity you know like in the pioneer days having good tool steel wasn't necessarily always readily available and so they had to conserve as much material as they could and the best way to do that was to forge it or combine it with uh non-hardenable material so they would you know like bit weld 
uh, hard cutting edges into axe heads or, you know, do hidden tang blades completely forge a shape. But the reality is we don't live in those times anymore. There's plenty of good material available to us uh, to make knives from uh, is, you know, where do you stand with the whole forging? Cause it sounds like you actually do. Uh, I, I didn't realize that you did as much forging as you do. Um, but forging as well as stock removing. Yeah. I haven't forged much for quite a while. Um, I've even forged three V, but the only reason I'd ever forged three V is because like, um, some of my pieces are water jet cut and you end up with these drops and some of the drops sure. are pretty substantial when you're cutting out sword blanks. But yeah. those drops are like, man, that's that that piece is like got you know two inches wide here and an inch and a quarter or something wide here. There's still a pretty substantial piece, but maybe I want more curvature in it. And I'll yeah. take and and forge in some curvature. You have to be really careful with air hardening steels because they have a sure. smaller window to to move material. And you really just, I mean, you you stop hitting it when it's still red hot. Um, right. And you're just doing just enough to make sure you have the profile. Now, I've seen people that have actually forged in more bevel work on like 3V and even some of some other steels that I wouldn't consider really good for forging. I found Venetus 4 Extra is really hard to forge. I've actually just broken shit trying to do that. So I'm, I'm like, <laughs> okay. well, let's not do that ever again. Um, M4 was also the same way. I made big old chunks of really expensive, worthless steel out of M4 trying to forge it. Um, but 3V is a little more forgiving in that sense, but you still have to manage its its temperatures a lot, and you have to, um, when doing heat treat, take that into uh, consideration and do some form of annealing process uh, so that you can relax the, the stress that you've put in that material. Sure. Now, basic carbon steels... Um, when I'm saying basic, I'm talking about your, your 10 series, your 5160, uh, your, your, your W series, uh, are less basic, but then you can get some vanadium into some of those. And anyways, um, uh, I really do like those materials and, uh, I, I, I get a little frustrated with how easily they rust, especially when working on something. I mean, one of the challenges you're and you probably experienced this, some of your projects that take a long time, you know, you get the blade all figured out and finished and then you tape it up because you don't want to scratch the finish and you're working on the handle and stuff like that. But sometimes sure. the, the handle takes a few days or whatever like that. And then you go take the tape off and somehow some of the water got under the tape and now you got, mm. you've got finishing to do on a blade now that, that has a handle on it. So your, your <laughs> setups don't work the same when you have a handle on it that it does when it right. doesn't have a handle on it. And, uh, and so that's one of the things that, that, that process, but, um, consistency and performance for me personally, and this is just my experience. I am better. I am able to produce a higher performing blade and, and more consistently with stock removal and modern metallurgy. That's just my experience with the testing that I've done with the competitions that I've competed in. And I'll tell you. If there was a material out there that I knew of that I've worked with that could achieve higher performance than what I'm achieving right now, I am a, I'm a steel slut. I would go right to it and use it <laughs> um, because performance is my number one concern and characteristic of sure. metallurgy and understanding what what the capabilities are and the consistency is. Now, I've actually made like 
One of my favorite knives I ever made is a 1095 blade. And I don't know if like the moon was in the right phase when I when I heat treated it or whatever. <laughs> but the thing was like magic. Oh. It it like it held an edge in a way and I never even put a handle on this thing. I just took it into the kitchen, was using it with just the, the steel tang. And I ended up testing that thing to destruction just to see why it was so good. Because yeah, um sure. its edge retention and its level of staying sharp was at the time, and this was in the early 2000s, was better than anything I'd ever made before, better than anything I'd ever used before. And um, so it really showed me that if done properly, you know, the these materials are capable of very high performance and, um, and should not be overlooked uh, and stuff. And there's often times when people think they need something at one level when you know a very good knife is going to be more than what they know how to use and stuff um but one thing i have noticed with blade sports is the limitations of forged blades have i've seen in my experience of over 10 years of competing and stuff i mean i you know in the last 10 years i haven't seen a forged blade really win anything um mm. in competition now granted a lot sure. of people aren't starting with forge blades because they're getting into it and we show them what works for us and they just they just use those steels and stuff i see but yeah. the people that do forge and everything like that they'll make competitive blades and 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 can compete and and you can win i mean like i've won with 52 100 um and uh it's it if i had to compete with 52 100 i wouldn't be disappointed it's a really good steal for for that application um sure. but it does have its limitations it does have to have a little thicker edge compared to venator's 4 um the geometry can't be as aggressive and the heat treat can't be as aggressive because when we have tried those things um we do run into chipping issues um or and fracture issues um just right. because we're outside that steel's comfort zone and um but within its comfort zone for competition, a Forge 52100 blade, a Forge 10 series blade, a Forge, uh, even 5160, a lot of guys make their, their training knives out of 5160 because it's inexpensive and it's super durable. So a training knife allows you to, to uh, swing with anger and discontent uh, and see if that helps <laughs> out at all. Um <laughs> Uh, and not have to worry about damaging you know an investment because a lot of these times like a competition blade i mean the inexpensive ones are seven to eight hundred dollars the the more expensive ones are fifteen hundred dollars you know because these are finely tuned precision uh cutting instruments that that uh have a lot of technology into them and uh and you don't want to just and you can just i mean it's like it's like a ferrari you could jump a curb with a ferrari and uh and hold on you could the you dogs. could jump a who let the dogs, dogs out? <laughs> who let the dogs out? You could jump a curb with a Ferrari and and say, well, this is a piece of shit. It doesn't jump curbs very well and it doesn't drive very good anymore because I, because you know. But it's like, no, put it on the Nurburgring and, and and see what it can do, you know. Not, right. you know. So so it's hard to make those, you know, to to judge things that way and stuff. But um, I you know I appreciate a good blade whether it is forged or whether it's stock removal or you know i don't don't eliminate i mean i don't i don't make a judgment i i i judge based off of if this blade is good at what it's intended to do and if it's executed properly i appreciate that and and whether it's forged or 
or stock removal. That isn't a, a concern for me. Sure. Cool. Uh, I did think actually of one more thing. So anytime I do cut videos, uh, and it's probably, <laughs> it's probably just my technique, but even if I do a bunch of cutting and stuff, holy shit, my arm is killing me for like the next two or three days. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know either. Have you, you know, you obviously get a lot of reps, so you've probably conditioned and trained your body to be able to handle that kind of work, but. Uh, is there anything, any technique or anything you can think of that can help people when it comes to cutting? Because, yeah, there was one, I can't remember, I think I was cutting a bunch of hanging rope and doing a bunch of cut videos. And by the end of the day, I like I had to go forge the next day and I could barely lift my arm. My arm was basically thrown out, you know, if you think about like baseball and throwing out your arm. That's how it felt. Um, yeah, um, cutting, uh, swinging a knife. Um, especially, you know, a knife, so a competition chopper, mine are about 24 to 25 ounces. Mine are actually lighter than most people's. A lot of people go closer to two pounds, but I run a lighter knife. Um, even a lighter, and, and, and that's a heavy knife compared to what most knives are. Um, sure. uh, but even a lighter knife, uh, just swinging and swinging the swords, like I have to, people don't, I don't show this in my videos, but... I do a lot of warm up, and if you see me in competition, mm. you'll see me doing. I have a, this thing called a Theraband. It's a, a Theraband flex bar, and it's the blue color. It's a rehabilitation device. Um, it uh, it you use it to warm up your forearms, your grip, your elbows, and stuff. And then also just you know doing stuff like throwing a football or stretching your you know stretching. Uh, just pushing your palms together in like a namaste position or something and, and really sure. uh, that, and then bending your wrists down and rotating. Warming up is really important. I mean, cutting people don't understand. It's like sprinting um, when you're, when you're really chopping and stuff, it's like sprinting or jumping. So if you said, okay, I want you to try to jump and touch the rim, you know, well, you're not going to just do that, especially if you're over, <laughs> if you're over like 25, you're not going to just walk underneath a rim and swing your arms and push down with your legs and try to try to touch the rim, whether you can or not, or touch the net or whatever you can do. You're going to like, I need to jog a little bit. I need to stretch a little bit. I need to try jumping not as high as I can, whatever that is right now, a few times before I go and try to jump as high as I can. Um, so it's, it's actually really important to warm up um, and uh, work on the areas of the elbow on the inside and the outside uh, and then part of the shoulder and the arm. And those are only part of it because if you're really cutting properly, you're using your hips, you're using your legs, you're using your shoulders, um, your back, uh, and then, your, then your, your, your elbow and your wrist are just the final part of the whip that's snapping because yeah. all the power has been generated before it gets to there. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, uh, warm up, do, do, and then whatever you're going to do, start out lighter and just, and try to stay smooth and consistent versus being really ballistic. It's that start sure. and stopping, starting fast and stopping fast are where we're going to damage things. A great example is, uh, people don't realize with baseball pitchers when they, when they throw their elbow or their shoulder out, uh, most of the injuries that they occur are during the follow-through after they've already released the ball. Um, most people assume that it's that acceleration phase of, you know, 
winding, getting a ball going 90 plus miles an hour is going to damage you, but it's actually getting your arm to transition from being something that makes a ball go over 90 miles an hour to something that just isn't doing that right now uh, sure. is where you can get a lot of injuries and stuff. So understanding that uh, can can help you keep from making it so that swinging a hammer the next day is not unbearable. And because and, I've known people in blade sports that have injured themselves and had trouble going back to work because uh, they did the analogy where they, they, you know, in our competition, you start out chopping a two by four, a two by six. That's how the competition starts. So that's basically, if you don't warm up, that's asking you to go like, start running as fast as you can now in jeans, you know, and, (laughs) and whatever you're wearing for shoes. Um, Versus like, Hey, go put, go put your sweats on take a jog, you know, and then stretch a little bit and then do a couple like half speed and then three quarter speed. And now you can try full speed and see how you're doing and stuff. Um, so yeah, treat it like, treat it like anything. Um, it's not just, it's just not just slicing stuff. You probably found that when you were working in a kitchen that if you just grabbed things and started dicing, you weren't, you weren't on as well as you just kind of worked your way into it started slow and yeah. then started speeding up and stuff Absolutely. versus just like look how fast i can do it i'm just grabbing the knife and go you know it's like it doesn't oh, work. that's how you cut your hand off <laughs> yeah yeah that's how that's how that's how the carrots have fingernails in them Ugh. yeah start so le- ease into it and then yeah yeah decelerate nicely I like it. Well, well okay. the warm up, your deceleration has to happen fairly quickly so that you don't obviously cut yourself. Um, proper yeah, technique, sure. allowing yourself to follow through during training and blade sports. We do a lot, and really, the first thing we focus on in blade sports is safety because you're you're literally swinging around a ten inch razor blade, and uh, <laughs> if something goes bad with that blade, it's not gonna be. It's, I mean. The worst, I mean, the, the, the best case scenario is that you have to get some stitches, but the worst case scenario is that you die. Um, so sure. uh, neither one are good. So we just, we just really focus on safety. And yeah. so the warm up and, and then proper, proper body mechanics so that when you swing a knife, allowing yourself to swing at full power, you got to realize that you got to have a landing strip for that blade after mm. you cut through what you cut through. Whether that be, you know, a two by four to land on to stop your momentum, or if you're cutting a rope, uh, you know, make sure that your your follow through leg is back so that your body naturally turns and your blade is cleared from your legs and your hand and everything like that. Uh, so that because even just a slight encounter with that edge is going to be a very big cut. Yeah. Um, if anybody wants to get into blade sports, I mean, you mentioned that the season it has kind of come to a stop for for this year, but it's going to pick back up uh, basically probably as soon as you know things are safe for everybody to get back out there and traveling around and doing stuff like this. Um, but if anybody's interested in getting into blade sports, how do you suggest they get started? So, um, uh, bladesports.org. We have a website. You can go there. It'll show you up. Uh, it'll it'll uh, basically you can go to events or you can see if there's um, if there's certified instructors or 
You can, you know, there's contact information there. You can see if somebody's close to you. The best mm -hmm. to do is to get trained, um, get trained by a, uh, a certified instructor like myself. Um, we have a, we have a, a fair amount and they're distributed throughout the United States. Um, but yeah, just calling and contacting, emailing them and seeing how you can get involved. Uh, Donovan Phillips is our executive director, but, um, there's other people's contacts there. And, yeah. um, there's two ways. One is you can go to a school. We put on different schools throughout the year. And you go to that school, and it's usually two days, and uh, it's on a, it's oftentimes on a weekend. And we'll, the first day is all about instruction. You'll get certified. You'll get taught how to use a knife. Um, if you don't have a knife, there are generally knives there that people bring that other people can use. Um, you can make your own knife, um, and we can tell you uh, what works and what doesn't. We can show you how to test it. And, and just the whole thing. The interesting thing about Blade Sports is that there are... There are very few, very, very few secrets. We share all the information. So someone can just come into this thing and they can get my uh, 10, 11 years of experience and in innovation and development and all that stuff. And I just tell it to them. And Donovan as well, Gary Bond, uh, um, uh, James Clifton is also a world champion. Uh, you know, we have we have four or five active world champions right now that are willing to share and explain things and, and help you uh, help you develop a competitive knife. And in the process, you're going to learn how to just, just you're going to learn how and why uh, to make a good high-performance blade, whether it be a competition chopper or it be a, a, a skinning knife, a, a, a chopping knife. A, uh, even, a, even a lot of the things we apply are really good to apply to kitchen knives and stuff. Um, it's sure. not meaning that it's going to be the the only information you need, but it's really good information for making all sorts of cutlery. Uh, right. So yeah, you just contact, uh, get go to the website and and just go down the the internet rabbit hole, and it'll get you in touch with somebody. Um, nice. Yeah, I love it. Um, I just real I was realizing that we like we started the podcast and. Normally the podcast starts out talking about like what what you've been up to and blah blah blah. We just dove straight into the conversation. So, um, but we have throughout the conversation kind of started discussing some of the stuff you've been up to, especially this, uh, a tri my tritanium is that what? It was? Yeah, yeah, I call it tritanium. Yeah. Uh, I like it. And it's just you know everybody in the internet and the world you, you come up with a, a a phase and and I wanted something simple that explained what we're doing i haven't figured out how to name the sand titanium uh, because uh it's different it's only two types of titanium the tritanium means there's three types of titanium that went into this project um and uh through a lot of sam's research and uh basically me just being like keep going buddy and uh and <laughs> how about you know and just i would throw in my hey what about this material and it's 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 makeup and 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 what type of uh structures are we going to form with your heat treat process and then me helping out with equipment making sure that he has um he has the equipment necessary to do experimentation and be reproducible so that we can get consistent results yeah. um and then us working together uh, spending time in my shop and uh and and hand making things together um so uh, the tritanium is, 
is uh, these three types of titanium. We found that this this one particular material that that Sam was able to locate, it's out of Russia, and it's a military armor plating that um, it's BT twenty three, and it it um uh, it's very limited in its sizing. It's only like we can only get it in the eighth inch right now, and there's a very limited amount. Um, but it has been shown to be a really good. It makes a really amazing edge for titanium when applied to the proper heat treat. We tr he tried using grade 38, which is the American armor plating, and it's really good at making a clad or a body of a sword, but the edge retention capabilities with the heat treats, we just haven't been able to exploit um, a performance level that we thought was adequate. Um, it still works, but it's not great. Um, but this BT-23 is super good. Now, Sam's got a couple other formulas that that we've been testing and we've gotten amazing results, but the consistency has been challenging because from one one piece to another piece, they, there's a, a noticeable difference if you really try to exploit them. And sure. um, and so uh, we, we have more refinement to do on that. So the titanium comes from the three types of titanium. You have to pick just like you do with um, with types of Damascus or other other things that are welded together, you have materials that are similar but a little bit dissimilar so you have to find like a middle ground something that they both bond to well and that's what we've used for the rod uh experimenting with different types of of titanium rod to weld those together and stuff now so that that formed the tritanium and i have a couple different formula blades that i'm working on with that that i'm testing one of them is this is the first the first full sword prototype because the other prototyping phase was like machetes and knives and stuff that we really you know didn't have to put all the work into but got to test the results and sure. uh and once i got once i got uh the results i was looking for with this machete i'm like dude we're, we're running full size with this um that uh, that was the one i was really testing against like 1070 and other steels that i know and right. uh, went through partially destructive testing to see exactly when it fails and how it fails. And it achieved the level of performance that I'm totally comfortable with uh, letting other people experience. And uh, uh, so uh, we, we take the BT-23, um, we use uh, a selected type of rod, um, and then weld that on to the grade 38 body. And those are the basically like a bit edge formation and so those are one type of sword that okay. we've worked with but then we also were like well what if we could create a sand mine we could get this bt23 in the core and then have it you know the clad being the grade 38 and then we've got another formula of tie that's really super limited but i've used it in golf club heads um that's made out of japan and it's um uh, really hard to get, but uh, we've got a supply that we're, we're looking at making some other pieces with, some other Sanmai with, uh, with the sure. Grade 38, because Grade 38 works amazing for the body. I mean, it's a, it's it's bulletproof armor plating, so it's it, it's it's able to take massive amounts of shock, and it has super wow. flexibility and stuff. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the two avenues that we've been exploring to develop these. Um, develop these swords that just perform unlike anything that I know of in the world, because I yeah. can have, you know, a massive sword that weighs what, you know, a one-handed sword, but it, so you have this one-handed and two-handed capability of this giant, it's like, it's like taking what people see and, you know, just fantasy movies, anime, or just all this stuff. It's like, Hey, what if sure. that, what if that could be real? Like, what right. if that could actually be a real thing? And that's like the, you know, the 12 year old, 
Conan fan of me. I was like, dude, this, <laughs> what if what if we could solve the riddle of steel? <laughs> no, <laughs> or or titanium. <laughs> titanium. <laughs> titanium. Get it. Do it now. <laughs> so yeah, it's just sometimes you gotta allow yourself to just be a dork. And uh, oh and, for sure. I mean, the, the the coolest things. I mean, like some people expect me to be all sophisticated or educated and stuff like that, and I'm actually just a huge dork a lot of the time. And uh, and the people that 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 buy my stuff, they appreciate that. Uh, and so that's that's kind of my market and stuff. Yeah. It's just like being being able to set your yourself up to be able to answer those questions because. Um, a really good piece of advice that I got early on from a, a good friend of mine, Bruce Bump. He's a master smith out of Walla Walla. And if you haven't seen Bruce Bump's work, uh, it's just, it's one of those things that if you're a knife maker and you look at, you're like, I don't even know why I try anymore. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he's, he's just, he's got a level of proficiency and skill and, and, and production. Uh, it's, it's, I, it's very humbling in a way, his, his, the work that he does. In 2002, I went down to his shop, and he was helping me make a, a billet of Damascus, which I didn't realize how big of a deal that was, because, you know, you got this master smith that's just like, yeah, come on down and do this thing. And I ended up making a really cool knife that I gave to my brother with it. But um, nice. I, was, I, was, I was into knife making. It was still, like, into my first year of knife making, but I'd, I, was bit, I was a bit by the bug, and I, I knew it was something I was going to do my whole life. And... Um, I was kind of contemplating whether I go to the ABS and go through that path of, of like, Hey, he was, he was just finishing up that part of it where he was getting certified for master Smith. I was actually, you know, helping him. I was like taking apart parts of his quillion dagger before it was all finished. And he was letting me check it out and stuff. So it was really cool. But, oh, wow. um, I was asking him about his, about, being a master smith and going through that five-year process of becoming a journeyman smith and testing for journeyman or well becoming a an apprentice testing for journeyman getting your your knives judged at blade and then uh and then uh testing for master and being judged for master and it's like a five-year process if you don't take a class um right. and 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 i was at the very beginning i was going to start as an apprentice but I appreciate the ABS and I think it has contributed a significant amount to the 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 um the whole side of custom knives. I think it's done a huge amount of exposure and 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 really keeping a lot of things alive that may have just disappeared and sure. stuff. But there there's a sequence to that and and it has its limitations and and you and a lot of people would you know they they like buoys and if you like to make buoys and you like cowboy style buoys and you like those kinds of things which are awesome pieces and there's some makers like nick wheeler and stuff that make amazing buoys and 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 uh, and, and bruce bump and everything and i would love to own one of those pieces but they're yeah. not something i'm driven towards uh i have another i have other things that that are interesting to me but bruce told me hey um you could you could go test and 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 try to become a master smith and and in that process and that that is one thing but but you could also you could also just make the knives you want to see made in the world and not have to i don't know not have to 
corner yourself into that that identification. Look, I'm a, I'm I'm a part of the ABS and this and stuff, which is there's nothing wrong with that, but there are some areas where I don't think they they promote the type of experimentation and innovation that that I'm drawn towards. And sure. I don't think I would have ended up making the pieces that I make if I would have gone down that path. And right. so that's kind of the same advice I give to new makers is like, um, if you want to, I mean, there's, there's two reasons to make knives. One is, um, you know, it's actually a trade that you want to do and, and, and it, 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 it compels you and you would, you would treat it like a job and do the work and sell the things and make the monies and, uh, and, and keep going with that. And that is absolutely honorable. And, and there are people that do that. Um, and there's also people that just are compelled to create things that, um, that they're like, well, the world's not going to make this shit. So I better. And, and well, I don't know how, but what if I learn one thing that'll let me get me closer, like how to use a tool or how to, on, or, or more about steel, or even more about other metals that aren't typically known to do that. Three um, V was not really ever known as a sword steel, um, and in fact, Three V when it first came out, I think people were heat treating it improperly, and it got kind of a bad reputation. But I okay. really looked at three B, and then I talked to Bruce, who'd had a little bit of experience with it. I talked to Jerry Hossum, who had quite a bit of experience with it. And I was kind of asking, well, what does this do that other steels don't do, and why do you like it? And they started explaining to me some things about some properties that it had. And then I started looking at things in steel that make it do things, that make it tough, or make it hold an edge, or make it do that stuff. And I was like, well, maybe there's more about this metallurgy than that this steel that that um, that people haven't asked the question. Like, could this be a sword? And not only be a sword, could it be like an extremely high performance sword, being that it has all the cutting capability, could withstand even thinner geometry, but still be durable enough to chop two by fours and trees and stuff. Sure. And those were the questions that I was like, oh, well, that shit has to happen. Let's see what, let's see how to do this. Yeah. Um, and so that's when you're going to, I think when you're going to get fulfillment out of the creation is, is, is doing something or solving a problem or, or just creating something that uh, or innovating you know that's that's the that's that's what makes me excited about being a knife maker or making knives and swords and stuff absolutely i'm 100 on board i agree my friend so we are well over two hours into this great conversation and i just want to say very big thank you to you for taking the time uh, to sit down and chat with me. Uh, I apologize for some of the technical difficulties. I don't know if they're going to come through in the final recording, but uh, I appreciate your patience through the process, and I had a lot of fun chatting with you. Do and, we, uh, um, real quick, do also, we have any Hey Man? Can I ask you questions or any of the other cool stuff? Because I've listened to all of them and, and all of the uh, the podcasts. We didn't, we didn't get a list of questions or anything? Uh, we got a couple, uh, but I think just in conversation, we kind of touched on a lot of stuff. Oh, all uh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, one person is asking just to, to know more about the titanium stuff you're doing. That's one thing. Another person is asking best geometry, uh, for daily use knife, something that's around six inches long. Um, I'm, a, I'm assuming probably carbon steel. What, what kind of geometry do you think you would put on a six inch everyday kind of use knife, utility knife? Um, you know, 
a, a utility, uh, you know, if you go, if it's good heat treated carbon steel, like say a 1095 or, or something like that, um, that, that same geometry, uh, less than five degrees per side is going to be, um, just fine. Just run the edge to about 20 thou before sharpening. And you're going to have something, if the heat treat is good, you're going to have something really durable. And if you want to give it a little bit more um, durability at the edge, run 20 degrees per side when sharpening. And you're just going to, you can still get a really sharp blade at, at a 40 degree bevel. I mean, that's going to cover all your bases for like, um, for like a lot of abuse and a lot of, I mean, batoning or really heavy use going into different types of wood with really hard sure. knots and that kind of stuff. You should, with a good heat-treated steel, even uh, a good heat-treated 5160, uh, 5200, 10 series, um, or, you know, 3V or uh, 3V, you could get away with more. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah, less than, I mean, five degrees per side for the primary bevel, so 10 total. Uh, uh, 18 to 20 per side will give you a lot of leeway for sharpening and and a lot of sharpeners like uh like say your sharp makers or your your v-block sharpeners they usually come in a 15 to 40 degree setting for inclusive okay. and stuff so sometimes with my customers what i do is if i if they if they're a person that i is going to use the knife and stuff like that. I'll set those bevels and actually send them one of the, the V block sharpeners. And I'll be like, look, if you can touch up your edges with this, here's the instructions. And if it gets to the point where this is taking too long, send it back to me and I'll reset the bevel so that you can continue to maintain it with this. Just, you know, just a, a, a spider coat edge maker that, that, that has the, sure. the ceramic uh, rods and stuff. Um, that's, wow. that's kind of one of the things that I do for like my chop, my big chopping knives and like the Sasquatch or the silverback and, um, yeah. So yeah, that's what I'd say. Another one was, uh, it says how to hammer without messing up your back slash arm. I'm still very young and I don't want issues later. And I think we kind of touched that base too, when it comes to just taking time to, you know, especially like if, if you're forging put the steel back in the fire and then take that break time to kind of stand up and yes. stand at attention, fully erect back, maybe take a, you know, it usually takes like a minute or so to, uh, Here's... to, for the steel to come back up to temp. So you, that's an opportunity for you to go hang. Um, yep. Yeah. But what yeah. else you got? Here's a tip for the long game. And especially sure. if you are just, if you are just starting out, there's a great window for you. It's like it's kind of like if you if you've got a four year old or a five year old and you start teaching them a second language, um, yeah. there's this window when you start out with something. Um, learn how to hammer and hold tongs ambidextrously. Mm. There's two reasons to do this, and this is gonna suck at first because you're gonna feel like you have a developmental disability on one <laughs> side. Um, yeah. like it's literally like throwing a baseball with the wrong arm and stuff like that. I actually right. can throw both hands cause I, I'm, I'm ambidextrous, but I'm naturally left-handed. Um, oh, learn how to do both. Okay. Two reasons. One is, well, guess what? If I can do it both sides, that's half the wear and tear on, um, on my elbows and my wrists. Sure. And that means that that's, that's also twice as much recovery time between each elbow and wrist. And stuff so that's a the, just math works for that 
the other thing is is that you know when you're forging and like one side you're really good at but then you go to the other side and it's like you don't know exactly where to put it on the anvil and how to get sure. the hammer angle just right so that that bevel is as good as the other side you know yeah, yeah. um you ever get to that point when you're hand forging where just... you're just like you know, I was just yeah, doing got... that the other day. Okay. <laughs> like, God, why is this side always so awkward? <laughs> if you teach yourself when you're first starting to switch your tong hands and switch your hammer hand, you will be able to make a more su- a symmetrical blade because if your anvil is symmetrical and your piece is symmetrical and, and you were able to function symmetrically, you can always get in that proper position where you mm. have the right lead leg forward and the and the right ergonomics otherwise on one side you've got all the great ergonomics and then you flip the blade over and now you're like well i have to instead of pushing the steel i have to pull the steel while i hit that's a totally different movement and stuff um so if you're first starting out man and you're just practicing even on mild steel just putting in the forge and and beating on it you know just to get things moving around or even just grabbing a piece of clay and a, and a wooden hammer, and just yeah. learning how to shape stuff that way. Um, those are ways to develop a skill set that will give you the ability to preserve your body and produce a, a more symmetrical, higher quality product and stuff. But that's the long game. That, that, takes, that takes a period of time of feeling like you, you, you're not doing it right. And that's hard sometimes, where you're like, man, I just really suck at this, but maybe sure. I won't suck as much tomorrow Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and stuff. Um, and then there was one other thing that I was saying about that as far as the ergonomics and stuff, um, the warm up and like you said, you know, while it's in the, while it's in the forge, just doing a couple things to break up that monotony is a yeah. great idea. Yeah. Okay. We got, we got another one here. I just realized I haven't been reading people's names. This one's from PB forge. He says, what's the best point for a combat knife? So probably. <sighs> I would imagine it's a piercing point, but I don't I don't know anything about Yeah, um, I you know <laughs> unfortunately Blade Sports uh with our mission statement promote the use of knives as tools. Um we don't even have a real point on our knives because it's a cleaver bait. Sure. It's mostly cleaver because the reason why we use the cleaver is it lets you move the weight around the blade so that you can change your sweet spot if you want to. Mm. Um uh, if you were to grind a point into it, you'd just take a whole bunch of weight out of the front of the blade. And so that's going to change the handling characteristics and the, the, sure. the ability to chop and slice. And also a big belly, like the tip, like a buoy tip on the ropes and stuff, it can kind of push that rope away if you're not up on the blade far enough. So um, the best point for, man, um, you know, this is an experiment thing. You figure out what you're going to do with that blade whether you want it to be like a, a, a demonstration where you take mild quarter-inch steel and pound the spine of the, 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 the butt end of that knife so that the tip goes through it. Well, you do a geometry and you try that, and you're like, well, it went through, good. Well, then you go a little bit less and you try it, and if it went through, then good. If it didn't, then obviously you found the difference between those two. This is where, you know, real-world testing is... Um, there's no simulation or or anything because I don't know that person's heat treat or or steel selection. Sure. But it's like, hey, what's the worst thing that I want this tip to be able to survive? Well, I mean, if your tip can get forced through like cold force pounded through quarter inch steel, 
or a quarter inch plate, you know, mild steel. I'd have a hard time with heat treated steel, I think. Um, then if that's your standard, then if you've got people that want that, then make that your standard. But say if you want to be able to go, um, you know, you just want something that pierces and penetrates easier, then obviously the thinner you can get away with is going to be uh, your best option. But but what I mean get away with is that, um, you know, you might find geometry that if it goes into, um, let's say you're you're cutting up some beef or something like that, and you go through the meat, but as soon as you hit the bone, you, you bend the tip or break the tip off, well, then you don't have the right heat treat or design for that application. Sure. So um, do the thing you want to do and build the piece that is able to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And then that will be the ideal geometry or structure for that task. Love it. All right, this last one is from ks.knives. He says, uh, or they say, is it better to do a differential heat treat or to draw back the temper of a fully hardened blade? So also known as blue backing. Yep. Uh, so yeah. do you, what, which, what do you think? I've done both. Um, yeah. and I've actually done, I've actually done the drawback with uh 3v before and tested that. And it, and actually that's something I haven't told people about. Um, I've drawbacked like my super assassins. And that's when you see me do the crazy videos where I'm like sitting there bending and flexing it while it's stuck in a tree and stuff. Um, yeah. that's part of that process. And that was experimentation that Brad and I did with through Peter's heat treat. And we actually did some drawing back with Rockwell testing and show that you can change Rockwell hardness by just applying heat. Now it's less scientific and less predictable. So there are variable factors you're in court, you're, you're bringing into the factor that um, being able to control that is very difficult because obviously you don't want that heat to migrate to the edge and the edge heats up so much faster because it's a thinner cross section. So you may have to, you may have to, um, sometimes what I've done is I've clamped aluminum heat sinks to the edge so they have direct mm -hmm. contact so that it'll never let yeah. the edge get uh, hotter or i've actually submerged parts of the knife in water while drawing back the spine based off of color and this was mostly with carbon steels is when i was experimenting with this i think overall usability durability you're going to get a better blade by drawing back the spine to a spring temper um, you're going to get more of a springy effect uh, the differential heat treat is great but it can lack some of the springiness and you can take a set easier uh sure. it, and stuff and this is all speaking in like probability not actual you know like yeah if you did side by side comparison and and, and eliminated variables i would i in my experience i would say that the drawback spine is going to be a springier uh blade that's going to take a set uh, less often uh, and be more durable in a lot of ways nice okay and that's that's all i actually have from that's um... good from our question is there anything else that you wanted to touch base on that we you don't think we've covered no i i think we we got it i mean we could always do a round two but um sure, uh, sure. i appreciate it thanks for reaching out to me and offering this uh uh like i said i've listened to uh even when it was just craig doing uh, knife interviews uh and stuff i just I, I started up the podcast and put it on one and just let my phone go through while i was in the shop and and then you and uh 
you and Jeff got invited, and now it's like this whole funny uh, show. It's it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> I, I'm happy to see you guys getting the success you're getting because um, it, it's. I, I like I like the tempo of the show, and I think it's I think it's really good for the knife industry and really a resource for a lot of new makers, especially um, to 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 just get exposure to information and get encouragement. So, um, awesome. yeah. Uh, awesome. I, I, I've said all I need to say. Uh, once again, appreciate you guys, and, and thanks again for uh, for the invite. Absolutely. Well, and I appreciate the, we appreciate the endorsement. And uh, anybody who's listening, if you haven't already gone to uh, iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast and give us a, a five-star rating and write a nice review, um, and it, it helps us reach more people, um, and which helps keep the podcast alive. So with that said, I think that's a show. Thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you. Awesome. Have a have a good one. Let's uh let's plan those times for experimentation of awesomeness. All right, later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.